Hello everybody, I'm your host, Guillaume Cochois, and you're listening to a new episode of Tapis Rouge. Today's shout-out goes to Circo Vito, the happy spectator on Instagram, who was the first one to find out our amazing guest today, Gabriel Dubé-Dupuis. Circo Vito has been requesting an episode with Gab for a while, so my friend, the day has finally come. <laughs> If you've been listening to the show for a while, you heard Gab's name a couple of times already. He's currently my boss on the Helena Fisher Tour Bicycle du Soleil and wears many hats. Figuratively and also literally, he does wear hats a lot. <laughs> But seriously, what's really unusual with Gab is that he really excels working both on the production and on the artistic side. Now, how he got to develop so many skills in the industry and specifically in Cirque du Soleil is truly an amazing story. If you've been a fan working with Cirque for a long time or have been in the industry for a while, you probably already know that this episode is going to be a fantastic one. So I'm delighted to introduce the man, the passion, Gabriel Dubé Dupuis. Gab, welcome to Tabiroge. Thank you, Guillaume. It's a pleasure to be here. Very uh, honored and humbled to be uh, asked to join you today. Um, it's nice to see you as well. Oh, uh, yes, for sure. It's nice to see you too. It's weird to speak in English to each other, right? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, we, we, uh, you and I have been working together for the last six months. So, uh, and, and we're always around uh, our dear coach, Boris. So we, we do interact in English a lot. Yes. But yeah, it's, it's always it's counter-natural sometimes to speak English with somebody that you're, you're very fluent in uh, your mother tongue you know so uh but at the same time uh, i've listened to a lot of uh, the episodes that you created and uh, i'm a big fan and uh, i see the use of uh, maintaining it maintaining the main language in english so that uh, mm -hmm. it can it can really go around the planet uh, as opposed to being restricted to uh, one one listener only you know yeah for sure and it's funny you're saying you're talking about that because just yesterday i looked at the following like where are the listeners from the show and for sure canada and united states is the, the two first one but then there are people really all over europe like in germany the uk belgium and then all over south america too as listeners in peru in brazil in argentina and then even all the way to india china japan too so i'm very excited to have like listeners really from so many different countries and this is just the beginning because Yeah, you have listeners that show up every week and they're curious and they want to listen live, but you'll have listeners a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Sure. What you're doing is is uh, you're building up a library of knowledge, uh, of experience in, in circus arts, specifically around Cirque du Soleil, but in such various uh, jobs from performers to management to creative. And I think in, in hindsight, this will be a, a complete library will be looked like, like almost like a you know a, an inside look of how it worked mm -hmm. how something worked which is it's a i don't want to say it's unusual but a company will do that on their own and they will rewrite their history but it's also good to hear it from everyone else and then as a listener you can make up your own story as well when you're listening to the different pieces and go wait a second that person said that about this year in this project and then 
what really happened? And then you can have a better understanding of what actually really happened by listening to various people. So it's a great contribution you're doing to the world of circus. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. And yeah, you have been in the world of Cirque for many, many years and in many different capacities. So how were you first introduced to the world of Cirque du Soleil? Oh, my, my, my earliest memories are that of a child, uh, myself, uh, around a bunch of buffoons, basically, in the streets, uh, my dad being one of them. Uh, my dad was a comedian, clown, uh, actor. Uh, my dad actually used to say that he was, because uh, people always called him a clown, but he always used to say that He's an actor, first of all, and he was such a good actor that you'd think he was a clown. So that was a that was a nice punchline <laughs> that he had. Uh, but uh, he hung around a lot of the 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 founders of Cirque du Soleil back in the early '80s. So I found myself around them, you know, as a child, four or five, six years old, seven years old. And I have a very vivid memory of watching Cirque du Soleil for the first time mm-hmm. on TV at the age of seven as they were really branching out in 85, 84, 85. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it just disappeared. And, and you know, I grew up uh, uh, in backstages of theaters in Montreal and then uh, in Quebec City. And then eventually they reached out to my dad again in the early 90s. And that's when I, I um, got reconnected or connected with them. And I already knew that I wanted to be part of the arts, uh, the live arts specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've always known that since I was a kid. Uh, this was a world that I felt was was perfect for where I wanted to go, and I had a plan. and And when my dad got hired by Cirque, you know, it was interesting, but he was far. He was gone. You know, he he left to Japan. He did a tour with them in Japan in '92, and then he moved to Vegas. Wait, what was the show that was that was touring? Um, that's actually a good, uh, trivia question for anybody that's a Cirque du Soleil fan. Mm-hmm. If you ever ask what's the first arena show of Cirque du Soleil, uh, most people will say delirium 2005, mm-hmm. when in fact it was fascination in 20, in 1992, mm-hmm. it was a, sh- it was a, which was a show, a mix of, uh, Cirque Inventé and Nouvelle Experience, uh, directed by Gilles Saint-Croix and it was created for Japan audiences only four months uh, 118 shows and it traveled in arenas it was an arena tour wow that's crazy yeah uh, that's like yeah that's like a golden nugget right here like <laughs> who else was part of the team oh well uh, let me just pull the program right now let me pull the program just give me a second okay um Oh my God, such Cirque legend. Okay, so let me go through a few names here. Um, some some people might be unknown to others, but uh, to the Cirque community. Uh, okay, so there's actually le- legends here. So Jeannot Pinchot, right? He's the founder uh, of uh, Cirque Loise. Jeannot was on the tour in 92. Um, like I said, the two worst, right? Nikki, Sally, Brian. Uh, who else was there? Dimitri Arn- Arnautov, uh, one of the original flying man, the modern flying man, like we know. Uh, Luc Tremblay. Uh, Chris Lashua, right? Chris Lashua uh, was performing a BMX act back in those days. And Chris has an amazing history. That was his entry well into the circus arts, I believe. Uh, as a BMX performer, he created a circus act around BMX, he was probably the most popular thing in Japan, you know, uh, blonde, long, 
ponytail American guy. I mean, I think Japanese girls were going nuts for him. Chris is, is uh, you know, well known for being the Kidam uh, German wheel performer. There's such a story behind that as well and how he got there. Uh, but also Chris is also better known for being the founder and the artistic director of and creator of Cirque Mechanics, right? Um, who else? Who else? Uh, such great talent. Uh, oh my God. Let me turn the page here. There's some more. Um, uh, we had such an amazing, uh, oh yeah, the contortionist, contortionist ladies from Nouvelle Experience, right? So, Ginny Jacinto, uh, Isabelle Chasse, who's now one of the founders of uh, Seven Fingers, Nadine uh, Louis Pinette, uh, Laurence Racine, of course. Uh, my dad, of course, was in there, Daniel Le Battler, uh, Balthazar, one of the famous clowns from La Nuba as well, who I think was on the show for 18 some years. Cécile and Philippe Chartrand, Cécile Ardaille and Philippe Chartrand, Amélie Major, Jean-François Rougemont, uh, Didier Antoine, of course, Didier, the, the amazing Didier. Um, uh, Arnatua family, of course, with uh, Alex, Sasha, Tatiana, and the daughter Katia. Uh, David Lebel, who was one of the Lecon, original Lecon, Lanuba. Uh, Dave Lebel, the Bilodeau brothers, who were German wheels performers on Lanuba as well later. Mm -hmm. uh, oh my God, Giswaf Belka, who was a trampoline artist on Mystère, uh, I think nearly 20 years. Uh, so was Eli. Uh, Marie-André Richard, Bogdan, André Saint-Jean. I mean, this was a cast that, uh, I mean, you tried to put a show together. And these are all uh, A-stars that you'd want to, you know, uh, get on. I think who else was there? I think Michel Rolick, uh, who was also an amazing performer, circus performer, and Stéphane Droir. Stéphane Droir uh, from the Fertilini uh, Circus uh, family, I believe, uh, Stéphane, I, I worked with Stéphane on Mystère in the first years of Mystère. Stéphane was the creator of the Red Bird character on Mystère. One of the most uh, spontaneous and uh, creative on the moment person on stage. Uh, and quite quite a character, very talented, but quite an acrobat as well. Uh, oh my God. Yeah, so that was fascination. And that's where the my dad's character, the baby, was actually born was through workshops that they were doing for that show. So they called my dad and said, hey, we, we'd love to have you on the show. And he's like, yeah, I don't really want to be part of your circus, guys. You know, <laughs> See you later. And they kept calling. And then eventually he's like, okay, okay. And he, he pulled out, uh, you know, uh, a number that they, they easily matched. And then he was like, okay, well, let's, let's try this, you know. And um, in a, in a workshop with uh, Wayne Ronick, who was the creator of Benny Legrand and Mystère. Mm -hmm. Wayne was also a great uh, contributor to Cirque du Soleil for many years in Clown World. Uh, in a workshop led by uh, by Wayne, my dad was asked to come on stage and, and do something. And uh, he couldn't do anything. And the first thing that he actually did was just kind of stood there uh, silently and then eventually started crying, like hysterically crying, mm -hmm. but like a baby. And uh, Wayne basically looked at him and said, that's it. Let's build something around <laughs> being a baby. And my dad then started to develop the character. And on that show, there was also Balto, uh, the clown that, uh, a clown, very, very famous clown that was on Lanuba for almost 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, 
him, Balto, Daniel Butler, uh, a few other characters created a, they, they recreated a group of four clowns. Mm -hmm. And my dad had many characters in the show, but the baby was one of them. Okay. And the baby was a big hit, a big hit in Japan, big hit with the audiences, with the red ball, trying to find a papa or a mama. And then, yeah, you know, for sure. And Gilles at some point brought Franco on board to uh, have a look at the show uh, in Japan. And then they offered to my dad uh, two options. Uh, one option was called Vegas One and the other option was called Vegas Two. And Vegas One was the Nouvelle Experience remount in Vegas beyond the Mirage in 1992. Okay. Uh, 93, sorry. Uh, my dad was offered the uh, role of uh, Madame Corporation which was led by, um, I don't remember her name at the moment, but uh, mm -hmm. he was offered to take over that that uh, master ceremony character, mm -hmm. a bit larger, uh, you know, a, mm -hmm. a bit heavier character, or Vegas 2, which was a creation at the Treasure Island, which ended up being Mystère. So my dad decided to to choose uh, Vegas 2. And uh, in summer of 93, he left everything in Montreal and drove to Vegas with his girlfriend and uh, started as uh, the creation of Mystère there. Oh, it's amazing. But that show fascination, it, it sounds like a really important project for Siri because if it's the first arena show and it's the first time they send a show in the Japanese market, which is now the key market for the company, like every big top show, like not all of them, but most of them are sent to the Japanese market. There is a big promoter there. And it's the same promoter. Yeah, it's Fuji. It was it was the beginning of the relationship with Fuji. So that really was the was the, you know it it really broke uh, broke the ice as far as going to Japan, and then it took another three years, I think, after that for Sultan Manko to go there, and after that Aligria, and mm -hmm. then you know every every show started making a journey, and it as you said, it's a very important market, very important partnership, uh, and it's. Uh, I don't I think you've toured. Yeah, I did. Yeah, the tour, yeah. And the fan base is huge there. It's a whole different ball game to tour in Japan. Uh, the fan base is absolutely humongous. Uh, as And now we're touring with a rock star or a pop star in Europe, you know, yeah. so we're seeing a real fan base and, mm -hmm. and it's yeah. similar to what you're getting also in Japan. Yeah, People are true. coming for yeah. for the show, you know. So that show, Fascination, was really um, like a pioneer forsaking that branching, like going to new market, creating these relationships with other big entity to grow the company as a whole. And, and I think, uh, and I might be wrong on this one, but I think it was also the first time that the company had various projects going at the same time ah. in operation, you know, so Salt and Manco was opening a few weeks after fascination left for Japan. Oh. So the boat shows open at the same time, hence why Gilles Saint Croix directed Fascination, because Franco was busy with Saltamanco. So uh, and then they were planning Mystère and they were planning Alegria already. And, and also the, there was a the company was starting to to balloon, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's funny to say that now because people always say our oh, Cirque is is getting bigger and it's got or not so much now, but in the last decade or so, people always mm -hmm. say, Oh, it's getting bigger, it's getting too big, but Cirque was always getting too big in the eyes of the ones who were inside of it because it just, it started and it grew and it just yeah. started growing, you know? Yeah, for sure. So your dad chooses to go residential and to go on Mystère, which was going to be the first, again, a pioneer show, the first residential show of Cirque in Vegas. Yes. And um, he didn't, so my mom and my dad, they, they've been separated for many years, but uh, uh, they have four kids together. So and I'm the oldest. Uh, when my dad left to Vegas, I lived with him in Montreal, but he didn't want to bring any kids to Vegas. The main reason was that they didn't know whether this was going to be a hit or not. They could have 
They could have opened the show and packed their suitcase within three months. They had no idea this was going to work or not. So um, he didn't want any kids. But as Mister opened in a very uh, epic way, I want to say, because uh, if you hear stories of of Mister's giving, uh, I think the first run through of Mister was on Christmas Day, nineteen ninety three. Oh yeah, and the first run through was the first show. So uh, it was a very epic uh, delivery, and it's first time inside a theater of that magnitude, and so first time working with such heavy automation and scenic. Dominique Lemieux talked about about it. Yes, she mentioned that he was quite a wild ride for sure. Yeah, uh, I heard many many stories from uh, from my dad and from the whole creative team, of course, of those those uh, that delivery. Um, and as Mister grew to be uh, to become one of the must see shows in Vegas in that first year. My dad decided to ask the, chil the children to come to Vegas. But by that time, I was uh, living in Quebec City. I started doing summer jobs, and I was not so interested in moving to Vegas. I had a girlfriend. I was 16. I was starting to develop my own my own journey. So my brother and my two sisters left, uh, and they went to start living in Vegas. And uh, that summer, I actually ended up spending summer school learning English again because I had failed my, my English class in, in school. And, uh, and then eventually for Christmas, we came to visit my mom and I, we came to visit uh, the family in Vegas. Um, but things were not going so well for me at this, uh, at this time in my life. I was struggling in school. I was uh, more of a bum street uh, kid. You know, I was having just focused on having fun and, and, you know, the focus was not necessarily at the right place. And my parents rightfully, uh, Uh, decided that, uh, and I, I say rightfully now with looking back, but at the time it was really hard to swallow, but they decided that I was not coming back to Quebec and that I was going to stay in Vegas. So I ended up Christmas 94, I ended up moving to Las Vegas. Uh, it, it was a bit against my will, but at the same time, uh, when you're not 18, uh, you don't get to this to make all the decisions for yourself. So For sure, for sure. Yeah. And so you get into Vegas and you get to see your dad on stage for the first time, I assume? I, yeah, I had gone to visit in Vegas earlier that year. Uh, uh, walking in that theater for the first time was walk, like walking inside a cathedral for the first time. It it was I had never seen a theater that huge, I'd never seen a theater that, and you know it's 30 years ago. So uh, the technology, of course, at the time was mind blowing. The type of lighting, the automation, and the they were flying Japanese drums in the air. The yeah. Chinese poles coming down. The grand volant, you know. Mm -hmm. and, The show was, and the impact of the show, I mean, you still feel it now to this day. So it was quite a shock. Um, and um, and it was a show that I fell in love right away. And of course, to see my dad on stage playing his character all by himself, uh, uh, mastering uh, the way the audience would would follow him on stage was quite, a, quite fascinating. And of course, such pride uh, in the eyes of a 16-year-old, you know, such pride. Yeah, for sure. And as you said, he was alone on stage, being that gigantic character playing with the board. And as you say, finding Papa, Mama, that was, yeah. I mean, the, the show of Mister has got one of the greatest opening of any of any Cirque du Soleil shows, I think, uh, that exists. Uh, and then at the end of that, a humongous opening, very operatic. Uh, all of a sudden, you're left alone with this really strange-looking character that's dressed <laughs> in a diaper. It's overweight. It's got a big ball, and you're like, "What is going on?" And so, as an audience member, you're like, "What's going on?" And he just looks at you and he smirks. You know, he gives you a smirk. He gives you a giggle, and he starts talking. He starts walking. And I've always joked that 
you know, out of the four kids, uh, you know, my dad was able to grab a lot of the inspiration of how to oh, behave yeah. like a baby. <laughs> so, the, you know, there's a piece of us that was always on stage with him oh, when he performed. So it was always fascinating to see how well he could do this, how well he could get the audience on board with him and, and they would laugh and care for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and it, it was a first learning experience also as to the importance of uh, those kind of characters in the show that breaks the fourth wall mm-hmm. and that is able to to remind the audience that this is just a show. We're here to have fun as well. Mm-hmm. We're not taking ourselves too seriously, but follow us on this journey. And the the, the, the show Mystère was written around the, the story of the of life um, mm-hmm. uh, through the eyes of the babies. So, yeah. So it was, uh, you know, of course, the age of 16, arriving in Vegas, watching this was absolutely fascinating. And as hard as the first few months were, uh, eventually I was able to uh, to start coming to hang out at the at the the theater on the weekends because I'd mm-hmm. started I I started to go to high school in Vegas, learn English eventually, and on the weekends, um, and that's the only. Uh, thing my dad's ever done for me to to help open the door he he asked the technical director at the time if there was room to create an internship maybe for a few months Mm -hmm. and every weekend i was granted a a, to be part of a technical team or you know so one weekend i would be with automation the next weekend with uh, rigging and the next weekend with um with the uh, carpentry wardrobe i started doing all of those and and ultimately uh, one of them was also with stage management and all i had to do is re- was be there learn from them they would teach me a track backstage and which i ended up running in the in the course of the six shows that i was there from friday to sunday um and it was absolutely fascinating and and of course you know that gave me the shot that i needed to like be even more passionate about and and decisive about the fact that this was a lifestyle I wanted to be part mm-hmm. of, you know, and I loved the show so much that from every angle I was at in the theater, I could sneak peek at the show from a different view. And that was also fascinating because from that angle, it was something that the audience couldn't see, but my God, it was so spectacular from there and then from there and from there. And then to be part of it, to be hands-on, to to give tension, to come along for the Chinese polls or, or to, mm-hmm. to give a clear on headset was fascinating. And, and, funny insight on this one is uh, is i it was really all hands-on on every department except for stage management i did not understand what stage management do <laughs> I, I i didn't get it uh it didn't make sense to me and i thought this was like the most boring weekend i spent funny enough i ended up becoming a stage manager later on in my in my career <laughs> but it was you know everything else was hands-on these guys were were it was all mental work about mm-hmm. how do you put the pieces of the puzzle together and how do you how do you mm-hmm. deliver a show you know uh, and out of those eight weeks, all I had to do was write a report. And, and, you know, so I was super proud and uh, I was even mentioned in show reports. I was so proud of that. Mm. And do you feel that this moment, um, helped you to refocus or find another focus in your life? Because if you said you were a teenager who were kind of like searching for a purpose or something and like coming on weekends to the show and trying all these different departments and being part of a whole because I feel that anybody who's worked on a circ show, I think there is that feeling of like no matter where which department you work for, you feel that what you're doing impacts the whole of the show. 
You know, when it says it takes a village to to raise someone, you know, it, it, it also takes a community to deliver a show. And I think that's what the biggest lesson of circus as a whole is, is it's not just one or two person. Yes, there's 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 pioneers, there's people that created the, the, the company, but it's a it's a full company that that contributes to that. And it's a full community. So to be part of that community, even though it's temporary, gave me a purpose. And as well, because living in Vegas at the age of 16, and by that time I turned 17, was extremely challenging. It's not a place where now it's changed quite a bit, but it was not necessarily a place where you want to be as a kid or as a teenager. There's very, very little to do. Um, it's very hot. Um, there's nowhere to hang out for kids. Everything is centered around casinos, you know, and that city is built around um, sins. So whether whether it's prostitution, gambling, alcohol, 24-7, drug abuse, I mean, everyone comes to Vegas to do what they cannot do at home. It's a little bit of what makes Vegas so attractive. And, and it's a city of dreams of, of, you know, you could change your life, you know. Um, so as a, as a teenager, it's a very difficult place to be. Uh, on top of it, I didn't know how to speak English. So in school, they, they, they put me two years behind where I was already in Montreal. Oh, okay. So there I am, 17, hanging out with kids that are 14, 15 in my, my school year. So mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I belong anywhere. And being part of Mystère on the weekends uh, gave me a purpose. And it gave me a purpose to 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 stay motivated and and it it gave me a new opportunity to to look at something a different way and it was a very welcoming group i was the youngest people always call me junior over there because i was always the youngest one and it could have also gone really wrong because i'm the son of one of the characters you know but uh, mm-hmm. the people differentiated that very quickly i made a name for myself uh by being true to who i am um by being passionate about uh, the show by being passionate about uh, you know the authenticity about uh, you know what you're seeing what you're asking uh, and actually i never saw my, my dad on weekends we would cross path between shows for a quick second we'd say hi and then we'd see each other at home later you know it's, it was very very fascinating so uh and yeah, it gave me a purpose. It really gave me a sense of like, this is this entire change in my life, which was very troubling to change uh, countries, cities, uh, the whole network of friendship is gone, mm-hmm. uh, gave me a new uh, uh, safety net. And uh, I made a very, very solid friends to this day that are uh, from the, that era, four guys in particular, one was a uh, a comedian on the show uh, one was a coach and the other one was uh, the band leader of the show and oh. four different generations uh, were all about 10 years apart from one another uh, oh. but uh, we hung out a lot and i learned a lot from these guys and they took me in like i was one of their their own and you know when you're 17 years old that's all you want is to fit in try try to find a place to fit in uh, what it did do on the other hand is it took away a lot of uh, what you do at, at the age of 17, you know, going to college, uh, being able to hang out with people your age, working jobs together. Mm-hmm. I didn't get a chance to do all of that, you know, and, and, and later in life, I started, I didn't regret it, but I, I realized that I missed something that uh, I didn't get a chance to live full on that everyone else has, has had. But on the other hand, my education was done through uh, being able to be at 
Mister for a couple of years because I ended up I ended up uh, and this is where it gets interesting is after that internship I didn't have anything to do the next weekend so I didn't want to go back home and, and do nothing and um, the assistant to the artistic coordinator at the time because that's how they called him uh, mm-hmm. was Chantal Tremblay and Chantal oh, really? yeah she was uh, that, that was her first contract with Cirque and uh, and um, as the assistant to Debbie Brown in the creation. And she stayed on the show as the assistant to the artistic coordinator. And she asked, she said, would you, do you think you'd be able to film next week to do a few close-ups for me? And you got to remember 1994 at that time, uh, those were big bulky VHS cameras, you know? (laughs) And I said, sure, I can try. I've never filmed in my life, but sure, I can try. And grabbing the camera on the weekend after, she gave me a list of items to film it made me look at a show a different way because now I could zoom in and I could actually look at something differently. And what Chantal wanted to highlight was things that were not done properly. So choreography that was not clean. Uh, There's actually people fooling around, you know, on stage. There's a few things that, that she asked me to spot. So, you know, and right away, the benefit of it for her and for the entire, the artistic team was humongous because now they had someone who could actually, uh, operate a list of to-dos that they all wanted to do, but they are lacking time to do it. So it rather, it really quickly it became a, a job of its own. Every weekend I would come in, I would be there for four to five shows, so Friday, Saturday, and one show on Sunday. And I had a list of things to film. And I would then play it back on the big VCR and the TV and the in the green room or in the, the office area of Mister. And this is where I discovered one of the biggest... Uh, uh, not it's not a kept secret, but performers love to watch themselves. It's part of <laughs> it's part of how you become better as a performer. But you love to watch yourself. You love to watch what you're doing correct and what you're doing wrong as well, so you can correct it. So uh, the beast feeded itself. As soon as I started filming, I got more requests and more requests and more requests, and I did that for two years while finishing high school in Vegas. And eventually it really became a job. I was not officially hired. I was, you know, I was, I was there, you know, uh, giving time, you know, but Mm -hmm. this, instead of being in college was my college Uh, because through this, uh, the video camera, what I learned is looking at things, different angles. I, I started looking at different body of work and I only realized it years later how it became a masterclass for me to to learn what's what to do, what not to do on stage, how to behave, what's good, what's not good, what's a good lighting, what's not a good lighting, what works scenic wise, what works music wise, because the show always evolved, especially in those years. Mister was the first, the only show in Vegas from Cirque. Uh, there was a lot of challenge. Acts were going out, clowns were leaving, clowns were coming in, hand to hand act, new, uh, new. So we're always integrating new people. We're always doing close ups of characters. And in my body of work, so it's like record one character doing uh, the, the pink guy. And then in six months, we're bringing a new pink guy. So we use my tapes to show him how to do this, but then he becomes his own pink guy. So then I'm doing another recording of this guy. And then we, you know, so eventually all of this kicked in. It was, it was, it was like going in school for theater for me. Yeah, for sure. And not only that, you're part of the, you know, you're an insider inside a management team that, that manages a show that decides how to deal with, 
injuries, with incidents, accidents. Uh, and then you got the big wigs coming to town, you know. So Gilles and Guy would come to town quite often, you know, every every month or so. And then, you know, people would, would shake a little bit because like, oh, they're coming to town. What's going to happen? Are they going to like this new act? Oh, no, they didn't like it. Oh, that guy's leaving now. Okay. And then, you know, it's not as drastic as that, but that's from the eyes of who I was at the time, 17, 18 years old. It was fascinating. And then you start to hang out with all these people and start to, to you know, like I said, you, you belong, you're part of a community. Mm-hmm. And right away, I realized that uh, in order for me to to continue this, I needed to actually find a real job, you know. And uh, uh, we made a push in Vegas for me to to have a job as a videographer. Mm-hmm. And it was turned down. Uh, they basically said, no, we're not going to grab a work permit. We're not going to get a work permit for somebody to do video camera work you know this is ridiculous even though the value of that work was clearly the value of it was not uh, denied if anything they just said look stage management's there coaches is there they can all do it but we're not going to hire or if we're going to hire it and then we made a case for it they said yeah it looks good actually we could hire someone but we're not going to hire a french canadian to do this we're going to hire an american to do this so rightfully so it all it's all it all made sense and at that point i left I left Vegas. Um, so that's late 97. And I left Vegas and I went back to Montreal. And I actually went back to Quebec City to live with my mom again. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I ended up um, every two weeks, I would travel up to Montreal and I would go around the office of Cirque and I would knock on doors. Because at the time you could just come in and, and go and go walk, yeah. walk onto anybody's office and go, I want a job. And that's what I would do. And people would sit me down. They asked me questions. What do you want to do? And then I was like, I don't care. I just want to like, I'll, I'll broom the stage. I don't, you know, I, I just want to be part of it. And at that time, my goal was trying to get on a touring show. Uh, Kidam was the one that I really wanted to be on. I had seen Kidam. I had spent a month and a half with them after their premiere in Quebec City. And and it was a show that changed my life. I mean, uh, for once, I, I realized that uh, the stage direction spoke to me, to who I was at the time, you know, late teenager, early kid. Uh, a little bit darker. Yeah, there's... Teenager, uh, so you can relate to it more. And the, to me, the best example is, you know, I hung out in Mystere and it was all former Olympians uh, that were part of the, the group. A lot of uh, Eastern Europeans as well, the Russians, you know, that were there. Mm. It was a really male-dominated uh, cast very powerful, very alpha male. And when I got to Kidam for the first time, I waited by the gate of the big top and it was the morning after premiere. And then they all got out of the shuttle bus. And all I saw was girls really funky and guys really funky, not at all physically shaped like the guys in Vegas. And they all had red hair piercing in their nose. They had tattoos everywhere. I'm like, Ooh, what is this? You know, and it's really like, yeah. it's really different casting. So I, I felt like I, I belong more in a show like Kidam. So I really tried hard to get on it. Uh, and then to my despair, it didn't work. Nothing worked. Um, and then one weekend, actually, I was out of cash. I had gone out living out of my mom's house i was crashing in a friend's place on the couch and uh, i made the trip to montreal again and by that time i didn't even know where i was going to stay that night so i hung out at jari station the metro station yes uh, before going to cirque and i just you know you, you used to uh, to use nick uh, uh, quarters to make phone calls right and if the person didn't pick up you have to hang up right away so that you get your quarterback Yes. Because I didn't, you know, I left a message or two, but I, I was 
I had no, no cash on me, you know, so I only had like a, a buck 50 or something. Yes. I called my friend for a couple of hours trying to find out whether I had a place to stay or not that night. When she finally picked up, she said, yeah, yeah no worries. You can crash uh, at my place tonight. I was so relieved. Uh, and then at that point I was like, oh, my, you know, I kind of gave up at that point. I was like, this is not working out. This was late winter, 1998. And, um, I was hungry. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any job because I refused to work in Quebec because I knew that what I wanted was to work for Cirque. So I refused to actually grab a job, which made no sense, you know, but that's how I believed in it, you know? And then uh, I just thought, well, I'll, at least I'll go by the office and I'll, um, I'll go say goodbye to the people that I know that are about to leave Vegas, uh, Montreal to go to Vegas. Uh, so that was the creation of, of, Oh, right. The, oh. And I knew the artistic director, Pavel, who had been a mentor for me, uh, in the early years of a, uh, Mister. and Pavel was on, O. and I thought, let me go and say goodbye to Pavel, you know, and then at least I'll do my round and then I'll go crash at my place and my friend's place. So I entered a headquarter and started looking for Pavel, you know, and this, this creation of always in full swing, there's weird stuff everywhere, you know? And then I see Pavel and he goes, Oh, Gab, it's perfect. I was actually thinking about you. I said, what do you mean? He goes, I need someone to do videography for the creation of the show we're working on. On Oh, I'm like, ah, but Pavel, you know, we, we tried this. It didn't, it, it, they're not going to, they're not going to, he said, leave that to me. He says, can you do it? I said, yeah, of course I, I want to do it, but I, you know, it's, I, and I kept stumbling and it goes, don't worry, Gab, I take care of everything. And then he introduced me to, um, Patrice Bilodeau, the production manager. And Patrice was like, okay, so what do we need to do? Okay. Let me, let me worry about the, the work permit <laughs> right away. Turn, I turn around and he goes, Gab, I want to introduce you. I want to introduce you to Franco Dragon. And here I met Franco for the first time. Um, wow. and Franco was like, Oh, Gabby, I heard about you. Uh, you're the one doing the film. Yes. Yeah. It would be great to have you. I need somebody with me as my video assistant, you know, so to capture everything we do, you know? And I was like, Oh my God. So, you know, I walked out of there completely buzzed. I went to my friend's place. I called my dad, <laughs> called my mom and I said, um, it looks like I'm going back to Vegas. And they're like, what do you mean? I said, well, I just bumped into these guys. They're offering me a job. I'm the big, I'm going to be the video assistant to Franco for the creation. And, and that's it. A week and a half later, I had a plane ticket, was flying back to Vegas. They had found a way to get me a work permit. Um, little did I know, I only found out years later, I was part of the wardrobe team. <laughs> Me, yes. <laughs> I was probably a seamster or something, you know, they had, they, they had yeah. extra work permit at the time. So they put me on one of those work permits and I, I started, uh, you know, in a brand new theater that I had seen being built over the years, but it was finally like, so we started the creation of, Oh, and my role was to catch everything that was special. So that's really, that's really a strange, vague mandate, but the role was to be sensitive to what's happening on stage during the creation and catch those moments that Franco creates that are going to be special. So I had two cameras. I had one, I had VHS cameras filming wide shots the whole day that I would edit and I would keep track of the times of what happened, what stagings we were doing. And it was not like, Oh, from four to five, we're going to work this. No, there was no, it was very vague. We ended up, okay, let's decide that we're going to work on the bateau now. So we had mm -hmm. a technical setup for the bateau and nothing was planned in advance the way we do it now. It was more mm -hmm. instinctive, you know? 
And my second camera, a little mini DV camera, was I was sitting next to Franco, and Franco would just tap me on the shoulder or on the, on the hand and go film, film this, film this for the first few days. And eventually, wow. I understood what he wanted because you you felt it in, in the room when he asked the question, who are you? When he started, mm -hmm. he started staging something with the performers, you felt it. When the music kicked in, you felt something coming to life. And then he would, mm -hmm. he would kill it. Okay, perfect. And then we move on to something else. And it, it, it bring the fire to, to life. It would burn for a little bit and then he would kill it. And then he would, he would do that repetitively days on and days on. And I would just catch all of this. And, um, so it was fantastic for the first few weeks, but then after a couple of months, I was like, okay, but no one's actually looking at this. <laughs> so, <laughs> so as much as I was having fun, again, what's my purpose? Why, why am I here? So you were not watching the tapes at the end of the day with the team and like... No, nobody was watching them. I mean, the, the not true. Uh, Debbie was watching them. Um, you know, some of the creators were actually really interested, but my role was to be the assistant to Franco. But Franco was not not watching the tape. So I was like, what's the point again? Why am I doing this? You know, this is fantastic. I am loving it. But what am I doing here? You know, and eventually Franco put a stop to create to the, to the sessions for about four days. And he sat himself in a room with Lynn Tremblay's assistant. Mm -hmm. And for four days, they watched every single tape that I did. Wow. And Lynn came out with a list. And it was very clear on the list. She goes, okay, well, Ju uh, June 20th, you know, from four hours 50 to four hours 54 and mm -hmm. May 13th, April 2nd, you know, and then it was, everything was given to me in an order. She said, put that together, grab those, those snippets and put them together. So, you know, back then editing was, was done with eight VHS VCRs, you know, that you, you'd play from one and then you record and I'd spend hours. So I would, I would spend the night at the Bellagio and, 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 and working on this for a couple of days while Luc Lafortune is working on lining, while the technical team is working on debugging the automation, while they're, they're, mm -hmm. they're doing pool tests, you know, it was, it was, it was a theater and so alive 24 seven. And eventually I came out with a videotape that lasted for about an hour and 45 minutes. And mm -hmm. if you look at it now, it's basically the show. Oh, all these scenes in order that, that Franco had created that he thought were magical, that were working a certain way. The typical lighting that he wanted here, acrobatics there, uh, dance wise here. And then they were all in order of what the show became. So Franco actually edited his show with all my videotapes prior to That's crazy and from there he basically said make copies to all the creators and this is the show that i want and then everyone started to work under the leadership of phyllis shrey and 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 the stage management and the production stage managers and at building this show in the order I make it sound very uh, simple, but it was not that simple. It was not so easy to do. But basically, you know, Franco had put a stop to all the research and development. Let's review what we did. Let's edit down what I like. Let's put them in order and let's give this a try. And then from there... It was the first skeleton of the show. It was like you had all the bones and then we can start going over and over. And It was the roadmap. It was the roadmap to O. That's amazing. So it was a fascinating process. And then... Unlike Mystere, where Mystere, they had to deliver the show and the creative team had to leave. Um, and the show must add to open a certain date. Oh, 
the contract was done in a way that the show was delivered by the end of July, 1998. But the theater, the, the hotel was delayed until October, 1998. Oh, so much more time. And this was done in such ways because Franco and its team has to, had to go to work on Lenuba as of July. Because Lenuba was being delivered for Christmas, you know, that same year. Yes. So what it allowed to do is that he completed the show and they start doing rest, dress rehearsals of O. And they would bus people in. They would bus people into from Treasure Island, from the Mirage, and they would bring them to the show in a construction site. We would enter all the public from the back of the, sh the theater into the audience. They would watch the show. We'd get feedbacks. And then they were able to do 35 run of O before the opening. Wow. which is something that Cirque was never able to do before because the show is always a work in progress. But by that time, 35 shows in, you've got a well-oiled running show that you're more sure. certain as to the direction you're going. So when O opened in 1998, I think uh, the third weekend of, of October, the show was an instant an instant smash. It, was a, it made a splash media-wise. Uh, it was bigger than anything anyone had ever seen uh, and lived as far as the, the, the impact of what the show was. Because we got to remember, Mystère was, was the sole Cirque du Soleil show and nobody thought it could be top. And if anything, they thought Cirque was doing damage to themselves by opening two shows in the same city. Mm -hmm. And by the end, they realized that we have two very different products very uh, different identity. They cannot compete with one another. If anything, you just want to see both, you know? So, mm -hmm. and uh, so it was an incredible experience. There is a story about, oh, I don't know if it's, uh, I don't know if it's true, but that Franco had like some heart issue during the creation so that some coaches, like this is Sasha, he was there, of course, and like some other people were called by the director of the theater. And then they had to tell to the director of the the casino, sorry, that the opening of the show was going to be delayed because Franco had some heart problem. He was at a hospital in Erna. And then the director of the casino told everyone in the room, if you don't open the show in time, I'm going to take you guys into the desert. I'm going to show you a cactus and I'm going to bury you under that <laughs> cactus. And so that Guy took Franco out of the hospital so he could finish the show in time. Um I, I, it's to be honest, it's the very first time I hear the story. Okay. But that said, there's some truth to what you just said. Franco did have heart uh, issues during the creation. Uh, I did skip over that when I was telling the story, but uh, uh, there was a moment we got all very, very scared. Franco was taken to the hospital, had a heart condition. Uh, he had to have her heart surgery, I believe. And so everything was put on hold for a few weeks. Mm -hmm. So, did they ask for an extension? But it's, it's very possible. Uh, was the casino uh, <laughs> negotiated? Did they negotiate hard to to say no to that? Very possible as well. Uh, though the, then the details of the cactus in the desert again, <laughs> I wouldn't put it past anything because uh, Vegas is Vegas. But uh, the moment that Franco stopped and and looked at all the videos happened around the same time that he came back from his heart surgery. Okay. But he was only, you know, for someone that suffered such massive uh, problems at the time, he came back very quickly. But everything changed after that. The dynamic of things changed. Uh, you know, that's why I said we there, there was an end to the research and development. At that point, it was like, let's get the staging. Let's deliver the show. And the show was delivered in July 1998 over three different lines then. 
Okay. And and by the end of July, the show is delivered. And at that point, the operation team started taking it over and running it. And Franco and Jill and the team would come in and out very rapidly, in and out to come look at things and give directions. But they were in Montreal and started working on Lanuba. But I think Franco had to take some time off um, after that before jumping on Lanuba, which created quite a bit of a gap for Lanuba's uh, cast uh, by the time that they finally got a hold of of having Franco with them. Um, we they were really late in the process. So mm, okay. as we opened O in October 1998, like I said, it was a huge celebration, media splash, you know. Uh, a week later, we were all in the inside that Lanuba theater in the dark, starting from scratch again. And I say from so Franco took you with him because he wanted you to do the same thing for Lanuba. Yeah, uh, Gilles and Franco both wanted me to be there for Lanuba. Um, by that point, I was just ecstatic. I was completely like uh, mm. I was living the dream, you know. And uh, ended up back to back or in Lanuba, and um, we were inside a theater. And Franco would say, who are you? And you could feel the weight of all this on the whole creative team. Everyone was mm-hmm. extremely fatigued. Uh, I don't want to say people didn't want to be there, but I think people were just at the end of the rope. And as we've come to know now, looking back on it, always the epiphany to that creative team. You know, it was the end of the journey for all of them. So Lanuba was that extra, like, oh, really? We got to do this? Like, oh, my God. And two shows in the same year. I mean, it takes a lot of energy just to deliver one, you know? So, oh, for sure. Yeah. And so we went into research and development. And I say research and development. You got to be careful with that. There was a lot of certainties about the show, uh, Lanuba, right? The same as, oh, we knew the acts. We knew the, you know, we knew the apparatus we wanted to use. But it's the way Frank worked, you know, in creation. You, you, it doesn't have necessarily a script written out. This is how we're going to do day one, you know. He tries to see out of the performers who they are, what they can bring, and now he can use what they're uh, contributing with what the musical composer is contributing, with what the choreographer is contributing. And and he, he starts, he's the one that's able to manage this and then manage the focal point as well as to the audience member where the audience is going to focus. So so starting from scratch, uh, we, we spend five weeks on Lanuba working on this. And we did one presentation to Michael Eisner, who was the CEO of Disney, uh, at the time, okay. Michael Eisner had wanted Sir to be at Disney for many, many years, and it took it took a long time before Sir agreed. Uh, really tough negotiation back in the days. Sir uh, at that time required to have carte blanche on every artistic uh, content, which is not necessarily the case anymore. But then it was it was you need to give Sir carte blanche in order to be partner with them. You you finance but we have the ultimate say artistically. Of course, it comes with the contribution of what a relationship is, but mm-hmm. on paper, that's how it was. Um, so Michael Eisner was not willing to give that up until years uh, later. And finally, when he agreed, the deal for Nanuba was made. And we were meant to open by Christmas Day or the end of December 1998, which is a huge season for Disney, of course, in the parks. There's yeah. a lot of tourism. 
And as we started watching, and this is one of those moments in my life where I'm like, why am I even here? You know, like I'm there with the video camera. There's Guy La Liberté, Gilles Saint-Croix, Michael Eisner, Franco Dagon is behind me. And I'm kind of like stuck there in the middle. And I have dreadlocks. I have huge dreadlocks, you know, and I'm like, and people are like, I just ended up like they all came and sat there and I couldn't get up. And I just like, okay, well, I'll just stay there and film. <laughs> And, you know, as I said earlier, you have to be sensitive about what you're seeing on stage. And I remember feeling everything we had. And I, I was super excited because like, whoa, we're presenting to him what we're doing. Mm. And though we had been super, super convinced and confident about what we were doing, as soon as it started playing, we were like, oh, we're in trouble. We're not in the right direction at all. This was way too soft, way too dramatical. Uh, you could tell that the mood and energy of everyone, we were we were just like, we started playing in a direction that was not the right direction. Mm -hmm. So that was an excellent checkpoint, you know, of course, yeah. to realize that. You were the checkpoint in front of the sea. <laughs> in front of the sea of Disney. And then, of course, that's that's those are the only times that you see someone like Guy La Liberté, you know, because Guy is Guy, you know, people always uh, feared Guy in a way because he's the ultimate uh, authority inside Sur du Soleil, you know, he was. Uh, and at that time, it's, you could see him skating around with Michael Eisner going, well, it'd be nice, you know, give us a couple more weeks to push the premiere. And, and Michael Eisner was like, no, nope, <laughs> absolutely not. You're opening December 23rd, <laughs> you know, which was three weeks or two and a half weeks from there. It, it was like you pushed me so hard to have carte blanche for the creative intent. But now that you have the carte blanche, you deal with that problem <laughs> <Yeah>. yourselves. <laughs> so the next day... Uh, the machine of Cirque started to react. Uh, they realized that some of the performance were in the wrong order. Uh, the show ended with flying trapeze. Uh, the power track oh. act was in the middle of the show. Uh, and everyone was a Pierrot in that act. No, so everybody. everybody was a Pierrot, which oh. acrobatically makes it that much more difficult to perform because you got to do triple back and saltos and, and all kinds of yeah, stuff. And that right. costume, extremely challenging. So then they made a decision, okay, well, we have to redo our costume for this. Except for Wellington, of course, Wellington had to yeah. stay the, the red Pierrot because Wellington mm -hmm. stuck stuck out early on the creation. So did Christian, so did Jesse, uh, known as Jesus now. Uh, there's a few of those characters that we really stuck out, but then they're like, we're missing a couple acts. We're missing a couple acts. So then they ended up getting BMX and um, um, mountain bike, uh, the duo bicycle act that ev everyone that's always seen Lanuba always goes, it was such a great show, but what an odd act, these two bicycles. Well, it's because it was, it was added like a heart transplant at the very last minute before the premiere. So all of the show opened in, in, uh, in a different order. Uh, for the first month, the show opened with Power Track being in the center of the show. And then three days before the world premiere in January 28 to uh, 99 we came back with the full creative team and then we in, uh, we integrated new music new costumes the bicycle acts uh, we staged the finale and this was like the night before premiere and i remember the night before premiere. yeah i remember we were like uh, three in the morning all inside the uh, the creative room catching a break and back then everyone smoked you know and, and you'd smoke inside the room and i remember giggling and people are like, why are you laughing? And I said, well, my dad told me stories of Mister, how it was hell the night before premiere. And I said, we're the night before premiere, we're staging something. I said, but it doesn't feel like hell. It feels fun. You know, and they all started laughing because then they started saying, oh, yeah, it's true. Mister, remember that? Oh, my God. Yeah, my God. And then the whole team started laughing and, and interacting within themselves. And uh, I was always uh, lucky where I, I was in my life to be that that 
destabilizing anchor point somehow mm-hmm. uh, as a younger one with a bit more innocence of course you you know and then just my authenticity i think uh, gave me the gave me the permission to uh, to throw things like that that i had grabbed on i have a very strong memory i remember things from the past that uh, that are very vivid and clear so i was able to bring back some of those memories and uh, even bring back some of because uh, and i'm i'm going to deviate a little bit here but uh, mm-hmm. there was only a few tapes left of the creation of mystery when i arrived and i i devoured those tapes i looked at those tapes with passion and there was one moment on a videotape with a performer that never even made it to the show and it was an improvisation moment 90 second long with a dancer Okay. And it was Franco and that dancer and the music that I found absolutely um, fascinating. And I remember when we did the creation of O, I pulled out that VCR or VHS and I showed Franco. I said, tell me about this. And he goes, oh, my God, this is so and so. And I don't remember the name, but the guy had passed away since then, never made it to the show. Mm. But he was a, a, a one of the grand dancers in the 70s and the, uh, 80s at Alvin, Alvin Ailey in New York. Mm. And that moment of improvisation was called um, burning feet. Like the guy was, okay. his, his shoes were possessed and he just couldn't stop dancing. And it was not his body. It was just the feet dancing. The shoes were dancing. Okay. It was magnificent. And Franco got very touched by this. And he took the tape, gave it to Deborah Brown and said, can you do something with the comets on O with this? And it's still part of the show. I think in the finale of the show, the two comets do a duet dance as the grand piano is coming in to sync mm. uh, and that's inspired from that moment and there was a very moment as well that he reused from that tape in Lanuba with the two, oh, with uh, Anton and uh, Natalia the two dancers from the Bolshoi mm-hmm. and it was a way for him to pay tribute to the prince character from Mister that never made it to the show but wow, that's amazing. this is this is where I think one of my strongest skills I've I've come to develop and learn over time is that sensitivity to the art that you see and watch and the memory that you're able to to bring back at the right time and and connect. And when the when the emotion is real, it it transcends time, it transcends uh, VHS, it transcends everything. Mm-hmm. And then you you duplicate it and you recreate it and you you allow it to take a new form with someone else. And um, so Franco was also very sensitive to that. And it was a very beautiful moment that he integrated in Lanuba and O. Uh, but all that to say that uh, I was very lucky at those years to to be part of that team, to be part of, um, like I said earlier, the epiphany of that creative team. And when the show opened the next day, was it a success right away? Lanuba was a different kind of success, but it was a huge success. Um, after that, the deal with, with Disney was that Disney was in charge of marketing. And um, that's, this is where it differs, you know, because uh, Cirque was always in charge of marketing for their shows. And in Vegas, the casinos, you want to have those people coming to see the show because when they come in the casino, they park, they grab a drink, they go eat, they play on the casino machines. That's the whole purpose of the, the bringing the audience into casinos for them to play. You know, uh, the profits on the shows are, are great, but the profit you make bringing 3,000 people inside a casino every night is humongous. Inside a Disney park, you want to keep your audience busy. So you're giving them one of many options. And Cirque was one of many options. So I don't think Lanuba was given a fair shot. And it took a couple of years of hardworking relationship between the two partners to get Lanuba's publicity up to the right level. And because people would come to, to, uh, to Disney and be like, I didn't even know there was a Cirque du Soleil show here. 
Mm. And Cirque was also at the beginning of the explosion of what the brand became, you know, especially after O. So um, uh, the show was very well received. But every night, what was very special is that every night that show generated a audience reaction that was unbelievable. The crescendo of the finale of that show with the Grand Volant and then the power track, which was probably one of the best act that Cirque's ever put together. Yeah, it's so amazing. You, you had no choice, but you left blown away. So it was it was one of the greatest show I think that Cirque's ever done. Franco came back. It took him about a year and a half to come back. And I remember I was actually with him when he watched the show. And he, 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 said, mm-hmm. he said to me, he says, it's amazing because we were so tired. We were so exhausted. And out of all this darkness came out this beautiful show that no one wanted to look back on. Because it was the final show that that creative team did. And um, it was just a simple, fun, powerful, and acrobatically superior show. You know? Our partner in this episode is Circus Talk, the online carrier marketplace for circus and the performing arts. Circus Talk is the new thing that is great for our international circus community. It is an amazing information resource, bringing news, events, and industry trends to us, professionals working in the field. What also makes Circus Talks amazing is their first online casting platform that connects talents and talent seekers in circus and performing arts. If you're a talent seeker, you can finally post jobs and auditions in a professional and transparent way, instead of using social media accounts. There are already over 28,000 artist profiles on Circus Talk that talent seekers can search while talents can find jobs and apply to them via the Circus Talk platform. You can get your first month free on both Circus Talk Talent and Talent Seeker Pro membership by using the promo code TAPIROUGE in one word. So go to circustalk.com, sign up to Pro and use the code TAPIROUGE to find your spotlight with our partner, Circus Talk. All right, guys, a little side story now. Back in 2014, I hurt my back training backstage before a show. The pain was so intense, I couldn't put my socks on, sit for more than two minutes, and obviously, it took me out of the show for quite some time. I followed a strict core rehabilitation program, and after six weeks, I got back on stage. But I kept having recurring pain. So I started to educate myself about core anatomy, rehab training, and pain science. I wanted to understand why am I doing all these exercises if the pain keeps coming back. The more I was learning, the more I understood I had to change. I started switching exercises, tweak some techniques and executions, and also completely changed my perception of pain. After a couple of weeks, on top of reducing considerably my pain level, I was feeling so much stronger, which increased my confidence to move and better perform on stage. My life overall was so much better. Finally, I was pain-free and not scared to hurt my back again. I had a lot of artists and athlete friends who saw that happening and asked me, hey, what did you do for your back? And I thought, I could put it all out in a clear and clean way, instead of always pulling random videos on YouTube and giving quick guidance. 
So I reached out to all the best doctors, physiotherapists, and performance medicine specialists whom I met touring and asked them to help me develop Protocol Cut to the Core. Protocol Cut to the Core is the first rehab and strengthening protocol for back or hip pain that also includes a comprehensive course in core anatomy, biomechanics, and pain science. It is approved by doctors, physios, and performance medicine specialists from five different countries. If you are suffering from acute or persistent back or hip pain, you can find Protocol Cut to the Core on our website at cuttothecorefitness.com. When movement is an issue, movement is the solution. And now, let's get back to the show. Did Franco leave the company after that because he was just done? Uh, Did something happen between Cirque and him that wanted something specific? Did they got into an argument? Was Cirque not happy with him anymore? Like I don't think there was a. I don't think there was an argument. There was a series of, uh, of course, a lot of work. Right? They they did the uh, Mister Alegria. Kidam, and then as Kidam opened, they started preparing for O and Lanuba. And they knew right away that they could not do the third show that was planned for 99, which ended up being Dralion. So already Cirque needed to spread their wings. And there was another project that uh, Franco took on in those years, which was Alegria the movie, yeah. uh, which, you know, was not very successful, but was very, very dear to Franco. Franco really thought he made a masterpiece on this one. Oh. And when I say that, it's it's not to to show anything. Or uh, I mean, everybody should watch it because if you don't watch it, you you will never know. There's René as the main character. Yeah. Franco did not master the art of uh, visual cinematography the same way that he mastered the stage. But there's still something really powerful about that movie, especially... Uh, towards the end when the, the René talks with all the performers uh, and he, he gives them a reason to be every night on, on stage. Uh, mm-hmm. I would recommend to every performer to watch that movie just for that very speech. Um, but Franco's uh, uh, deception about how Alegria was um, received, I think was very difficult for him to take on. Uh, and then the exhaustion of all these many years doing all this work and then of course the realization of uh, of such an incredible amount of work uh, exploding the way it did nobody's life was the same about after all uh, um, and, and i say that for in guy's life um, all the creative life but franco's as well um and in hindsight i think it's fair to say that uh, steve win uh basically after that started looking at circuit different way and start mm-hmm. um, starting to do a courtship with Franco directly. And I think that did not go well down. Uh, that did not go down so well back in the days. Uh, Cause the partnership was really between Steve Wynn and Cirque and Steve Wynn at that point really was starting to court Franco directly. And mm-hmm. Steve Wynn sold a uh, Mirage resort a few years after O opened uh, and then bought the Desert Inn in Vegas, started building Wynn Resort. And of course, we all know that uh, he brought Franco on board to direct one of the greatest shows that Vegas ever seen, Le Rev. You know, so, so this was the beginning of the end. But I, I always say that when you go somewhere together as a team and you, you get to an epiphany, when you've achieved everything you wanted to do, when you've talked about everything you want to do, when you've pushed yourself to the limit, when you've delivered something as grand as, oh, what do you do after that? 
Yeah. So how do you reinvent yourself? And the company went through a huge growing uh, episode after that. Uh, a lot of people started leaving. Jill was one of them. Uh, Daniel Gauthier was one of them as well, that uh, the co-founder with, uh, with, with Jill within a couple of years, you know. So I think mm-hmm. in the year 2000, they announced that uh, Daniel was leaving. Jill was leaving as well to do, you know, temporarily, but he was leaving to do his project with Cheval Théâtre. So you could tell, like, we were on shaky grounds, you know, and Guy by himself, is he going to be able to manage this? I mean, Guy was the visionary, but Guy was mostly seen as a deal maker back in those days. He was not seen as a creative uh, uh, guy, no. And at that point, he really gave a push to his company that, uh, you know, he, he took huge bets, uh, took a huge loan, I think, to buy out fully uh, Daniel Gauthier. And within, I think, a couple of years, the whole thing was paid back. So the whole company was his within a couple of years, which is extremely ambitious and extremely, uh, uh, it's a huge gamble. And then, of course, after that, you saw shows uh, coming, you know, and then uh, Varikai was the first one came in. There was a partnership. First time working with Dominique Champagne. First time with Dominique Champagne, you know, giving it a new direction. Uh, there was a deal also that was made with MGM Resort that bought out Mirage Resort. And that deal was very, it was a huge deal at the time, you know. Every every single piece of entertainment that MGM wanted to bring inside the casinos, Cirque du Soleil had the first shot, first shot at it. Wow. And then Cirque had a first, first shot as well as proposing. So it was really a partnership that both partners believed in. And that's when the New York, New York uh, adventure and MGM adventure start to, to you know, Guy started laying out the groundwork for, for those two shows, as well as the Mirage show that came in later. So we're talking about Zumanity, Ka, and Love, not too long after. And when you look at those shows, it's, it's all part of the vision that Guy had set forward. Those are all different identity, different um, uh, DNA of, of shows. They do not con- they do not uh, beat each other up at the box office. You know, they, oh, sure. they you want to see a, a grand martial art uh, epic show. It, it, it might not mean that you're interested in oh, you know, and you want to see a sexy cabaret reinvented by Cirque du Soleil. Humanity is your show, you know. So, mm-hmm. so the vision was laid out and and the. You saw a huge boom in the early 2000s of uh, of uh, those shows coming to life, and I was uh, I ended up staying in Vegas after that as a videographer for shows. So they ended up keeping me as a videographer, okay. but they also hired me as a stage manager. So I was a, a roving stage manager between O and Mister, and I would run tracks backstage. And so if a stage manager was sick, they would call me and I would come in and I'd run the shows at Mister and I'd run the show at, oh, mm-hmm. I never called shows, but I, I would run those tracks. So, and, mm-hmm. you know, so this was the continuation of my, uh, my learning experience and my, my education. So I, as I said earlier, Mister was my college, O was my university. Yeah. And you did also the two documentaries, the, the one about the creation of Ka and the one about the creation of Humanity as well. So... Cirque was a fantastic place to be back in the early 2000s because I was so passionate about camera and video. And, and so they, they said, okay, so which camera should we buy? And then I would get the top of the, the line cameras back then, you know, the mini DV, the top of the line, you know, and then on, O, of course, I was like, I'd love to go underwater and well, let's buy a camera that can go underwater. Let's buy housing. Oh, I don't know how to be underwater. Okay. Well, we'll certify you. So they certified me scuba diver. Wow. And then I ended up spending shows filming oh and i started doing a lot of videos and and the videos came to uh, 
the, the first purpose of the videos we were making was to um to positively influence performers, to remind them how great the show was by showing them the show from different angles. And I would use different music and the, the Franco Dragon technique really started to come in to play into my creative journey because I would not really know what I would want to do, but I knew I grabbed different angles. I started putting it together and I'd use different music and then something would build and something had a rhythm and something had an emotional connection. And I would create homage to the show. So, Oh, and Mister, I created two videos of those. Um, I started to get noticed by the Montreal headquarters by that time uh, as like a little creative dynamo that was just doing film. And, and, you know, I would film everything everything people you know you'd, you'd open up the elevator i was there filming you would open up an office door i was there filming you know so i grabbed most of the lifestyle in the late 90s early 2000 in, in vegas i have it all on video it's amazing you know um so i started getting noticed uh and i was paired with uh, the creative team behind the zumanity making of the movie lovesick Mm -hmm. so i was brought on to help them out uh so i was a camera guy for them i started grabbing a lot of you know, exclusive footage that they use in the movie and i hung out with lewis uh that whole year lewis was the director of the the, the film who did the fire within it's the same guy that did uh, lovesick which is a fantastic film as well it really shows yeah, it really shows cirque uh in a very fragile state you know uh, and the creation of a one of the most difficult creation i've ever lived is humanity and then uh, they had a they had a director for the making of Ka with Robert Lepage, but something didn't go right with him and it fell through. And then they called me and they said, would you like to be the director of that making of? And, you know, I didn't know what the making of was other than I had watched a few and I was like, sure, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I thought they come to me because I have this style and I have this storytelling style. So this is what I'll do. So I started proposing things, but I didn't have a team. You know, I had a producer who was in Montreal and I was in Vegas and I did not know how, t how making of and TV work. So it was a huge huge learning experience for me again it was another master class i think in how to do films how to do films for tv and uh, and at that point cirque was really restricting on on the budget that they were spent on on certain um films so using me for them was a way of not spending money because i was already in vegas being paid by the shows and i was capturing stuff uh when we got to the editing of that making of we had over 300 hours of video interviews 300 yeah. hours uh you should have seen the face of my editor and producer they were so they were in despair they're like what the hell did you do gab what did you do and and at that point it was very clear and this is where we didn't see eye to eye at all because they said we have to make a document for tv that is the audience has to respond to and i was like yeah but what i want to do is tell the emotional story of what that creation was he said, no, it's not what we want. What we want is we want to talk about the makeup. We want to talk about the scenography. We want to talk about it. And I was like, well, I don't really care about the makeup. And it's not that I don't care about the makeup, but for me, I had seen makeups done over and over and over again. And I, mm -hmm. I was like, but there's something else to talk about here. There's something is, you know, and eventually how do you deliver 46 minutes for TV out of 300 hours? 300. <laughs> so, yeah. so I have to, I have to say, uh, I give a huge credit to my editor. I took a back seat. I watched her at work. It took four months for us to do that editing. 
And out of it came out a, a film that I'm really proud of. And I think to this day, it tells a good story of, uh, it shows a little bit the ambition that uh, was behind Ka. And there's some really nice images. And of course, I think it shows also the innocence uh, of the ambition of that project. Yeah, it's funny you're saying that word innocence because that's something that Stéphane Mongeau said on the show too. He said we had to be a little bit innocent because we didn't realize like how humongous that project was. But sometimes you have to keep that innocent eyes to make things like that happen. Yeah. So that was that was my my Vegas journey. I was like, uh, you know, I did Zumanity, I did the car movie. When I walked out of the car movie, I was a bit broken. I have to say I was a bit desperate. I didn't really know what was next for me. Um, I, the creation of love was underway. And I had done a trip with Jill and and I had done everything Beatles. I have gone to Liverpool. I, you know, I, I went to Abbey Road Studio. So I knew that show was coming. I have, an, I have incredible footage of those meetings back in the days. Yeah. Um, but I, I knew that I was not going to do another making of right away, you know, because this was this was a, a huge and I didn't know. I was a bit disillusioned about that medium of work. I didn't know that really I had a future in it because what I wanted to do with it and what the, what the TV or the mandate from the producers was, was two different worlds. And now I have, I have to say, I have a bit of, I don't want to say regret, but uh, I do videos on the side with me sometimes. And I, and I do still play with it a little bit, but uh, something was broken at that point. And when I came back to Vegas to, to, and at that time I had a department, a videography support for the shows. Um, this was a new era. Daniel Lamar started to join Cirque. There was a new restructuring coming into Cirque and Vegas at that point decided to start restructuring themselves before Montreal started to telling them how to restructure. So my position was cut. My department was erased to the disbelief of all the four shows that uh, was benefiting from it. Uh, and at that point I had to make a choice, you know, and I was offered a job on, on love as a, to work in the projection department. And I was like, eh, I'm not seeing that. I don't, I don't know. At that point in my career, I had always gone somewhere where I had never been. And this is what I wanted to continue to do. And uh, then I got a call from a friend of mine who was hired as a GSM for a creation of a new show in Montreal, which was, delirium so arena format uh touring music mostly featured some acrobatics a lot of dance a lot of multimedia humongous show touring i had never done touring yeah. so i was like it's something i have no idea what it's about sign me up let me dive into this because that's always how i saw things because you know you gotta remember working with franco you looked at a big void a, a giant stage with nothing in it and you go you gotta fill it how do you do that mm -hmm. you rely on each other you rely on each other's capacity to to find ideas and you know so i for me going in a place where i'd never been was the same way it's like how do you solve a problem well together you sit down and you work on it so uh, delirium um, was a, a extremely, <laughs> extremely fun time. Uh, I gotta say, I mean, uh, I had never done touring, uh, and now we were mixed with professionals from rock and roll touring and the Cirque du Soleil environment, two worlds that collided with sparks like you wouldn't believe. It was incredibly challenging. They did not understand what we were doing. And 
we did not understand how to work otherwise, you know, and mm -hmm. the way that their schedule, we were visiting two and a half cities a week. There's no time for rehearsals. There's no time to work on the show. And Delirium was really ambitious. Two and a half city in one week. Two and a half cities a week. So you're doing, and our tour was, was considered a very luxurious tour because we would do back to backs. We would no, So we were not, we were not back to backs. We were doing two nights per city. So for the crew, they're like, oh, this is an easy tour because we get to sleep at the hotel one, you know, three, three nights a week, as opposed to always being on the bus. Yeah, crazy. But it was a long tour. We had a year planned out, you know, with a few tour breaks. And Delirium was a very ambitious show. It split the arena into two sides. Um, multimedia, like you wouldn't believe, was the equivalent of five IMAX screen. Um, and Cirque was ahead of its time in that creation of that show. Two very avant-garde directors, Michel and Victor, and a show that was music featured, rewritten songs with lyrics to build around the story with dancers mostly. But people came to see Cirque du Soleil acrobats, and our acrobatic level was not necessarily as high as the Vegas shows or as the other touring shows. So people would walk out going, "Yeah, it was great, but I'm confused." Because what I want to see is big acrobatics. And Cirque was trying to diversify its portfolio and it's what they present to the audience. So it was a really bizarre reception. You know, some cities was amazing and some cities was complete disaster. But yeah. I, I remember my tour manager said to me at the time, he says, I don't know if we're going to, it's going to be a good show, but we're going to have a good time. And it was a good oh, time. Man. It was a good time. Yeah. And I did a year on, on Delirium. And after that, I was asked, uh, my job was cut on Delirium too. So two years in a row, back to back, my, my job was cut. And um, I found myself out of a job again after the first year of Delirium. And um, I was then asked to be on the Elvis uh, uh, project. Oh, and back in, okay. back in those days, there was two projects for Elvis. One was an arena show, touring arena tour, right. and a Vegas show. And within the first few months, I was brought on as a videographer to go through all the images of Elvis. And the stage director would tell me, like, I want to see every time Elvis winks at somebody who blows a kiss. So I would start identifying teams like that. And I would be in, a, in an office visualizing all footage of Elvis and grabbing all of these elements. Okay. And within a few months, the touring show uh, of Arena was cut. Mm -hmm. And they decided to to can it. it. Didn't there was nobody to promote it, and they focused only on the Vegas shows, which was three years down the road. So everything was put to a slow. Uh, the creative team was a very challenging team to to work with. Uh, the project was not going as well as uh, they wanted. It need, and then I was stuck in the middle. The creative director was in Vegas. I was in Montreal, uh, in the middle of winter, um, extremely depressed after losing my job on Delirium. It was not a good time. Imagine. Uh, and then watching footage of Elvis over and over. At some point, <laughs> I got I got really blue. <laughs> you know, I got really <laughs> depressed, <laughs> and I needed to throw it all away, which is a pity. But at the same time, you know, uh, I was happy to be part of that journey for a short time. I have fun stories on that project. Mm -hmm. um, um, but then uh, I was asked to join on the remount of Sultan Monko Arena. Oh, okay. Was it the first time the Cirque turned a big top show into an arena show? Yeah. So after Delirium, Cirque was like, oh, there's a great business opportunity here. We could actually bring our big top shows, reformat them into arena venues and tour them into B and C markets, which cannot hold a big top. 
because mm-hmm. a big top in order to be sustainable it's got to stay in the place at least four to at least four to six weeks minimum right in order mm-hmm. to in order to be sustainable to break even mm-hmm. to break even yeah. so going when you go to iowa city or idaho falls or, or boise idaho those are all great markets but they cannot sustain a big top so the idea of turning a big top show into an arena for, you, you you then reduce your capacity of your 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 expansion of touring you know so as opposed to touring 60 to 70 trucks with a big top you go down to 12 trucks with a, with a, with a show that comes in sets up in 8 hours is out in 3 and is able to perform for 10 shows that week or seven to 10 shows mm-hmm. at 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 people sometimes a night. Yeah. So you're, you're doing a city where you have 21, 25, 30, 35,000 people seeing the show in one week and then you're out. So it was a way for Cirque to further develop the brand, uh, to go into markets that had heard of Cirque but never got a chance to see him. Mm-hmm. All these places that where people saw delirium and wanted more acrobatics, they were happy because yes, absolutely. And now they got they got they got the, they they were really satisfied with Santa Manco. But at first, I didn't want to go in Santa Manco because I wanted to go places I had never been. I wanted to do shows that mm-hmm. did not exist. And for me, Santa Manco was this old, colorful. Uh, what is this uh, kind of show? Like uh, <laughs> you know, it had been running since early nineties. You know, people always said it's old. It, it, the costume needed change. The music is old so i had that first reaction the same and and then eventually i i, I dived in I, I dove in and i was like okay I, let's let me do this job they wanted me as an assistant stage manager for the backstage and you know so i i, I jumped in and right away my arena experience that i had gone through for over a year paid off i became a a, a natural leader within that team uh on Sultan Monko because they were new at touring arenas, but I was not. Mm-hmm. I had done a year of delirium with the biggest, mm-hmm. uh, the, the best technicians in the world. So a lot of the knowledge and instinct kicked in at that point. And, uh, and Sultan Monko taught me a lesson that to this day is the most beautiful lesson. It, that show changed my life. Uh, the community uh, is how you deliver that show. Sultan Manco was built around, you know, so I had worked on shows with automation with pieces flying in everywhere. And we had a Chinese pole act that required the 18 member of the house troop to take it down in a choreographed way. Mm-hmm. And same with the bungee set up at the end and the bungee strike and everything is operated by the technicians and the performers. Performers were, were like, uh, like circus school performers, you know, they come out, they mm-hmm. come out when you come out of Salt and Manco as a performer, you know, you've done your, your duties. Like you've, you've learned rigging, you've learned choreography, you've learned singing, you've learned acrobatics in different, uh, and it's a show that really, uh, was so well perceived by audience. Uh, it was a show that's so pure and it was just probably one of the most perfect shows to to open up market goods and um mm-hmm. as someone that uh, was searching for myself at th- those years i really found myself within that group because it was half group of people that were part of the big top and then new people coming in mm-hmm. to give a remount to that show and the audience reactions on a nightly basis whether you're in london ontario or in stockholm sweden or in boise idaho or hawaii we went to hawaii for the first time mm-hmm. we brought we brought Sir du Soleil to Hawaii for the very first time because of Sultan Manco. And also it was a defining experience, changed my life. And after that, I had the itch at that point, I'm out of Vegas. I'm, I'm running, I'm touring, the, I'm touring cities. I'm changing cities every week. Uh, I'm living the high life of touring and I'm having a good time yeah. and I'm growing. 
I'm growing as a stage manager. I'm learning so much of of a new skills within the organization of the show. You have to be a bit more responsible. You're not just uh, you know you're not just friendly and and having a good time with everyone. You have to you have to start drawing boundaries and and uh, management. Uh, kicks in and then Cirque at the time was was giving us classes and man- they were flying in professionals to give us management classes so I learned so much Amazing. yeah I know and then and so I learned so much and and I became from G- ASM to GSM very rapidly mm-hmm. and uh, I was I knew I wanted to be GSM I knew this was this is where I wanted to be even though during your first internship back in Mister, you were like what are these guys doing they're not doing a real this is not a real job karma is a bitch <laughs> karma is a bitch <laughs> careful what you say in life because it's going to bite you back at some point <laughs> no uh, i became gsm and then um right away it was it was like exactly where i needed to be there's a few times in your life when you you're exactly where you need to be and gsm of saltamanco and then i moved on to kidam for a few years as GSM of Arena Touring and Kidam was a show that I, as I mentioned earlier, was a show that I loved enormously. And to to take the flambeau, to take the torch from Roland, who was the GSM then, who, who had only been the second or third GSM, I think, of the whole history of Kidam, was such an honor. And um, to look after that show, um, and it's a show that is darker, yes, uh, but it is darker because there's a lot of light in it. Um, and having lived through different eras of Dragon, you realize that what is on stage is also backstage. So Sultan Monko is in your face, colorful, rock and roll, honesty. Uh, uh, it's screamed at you. Well, it's the same backstage. Backstage is nothing but like high five love and I hate you and I love you. And, you know, mm-hmm. Kidam is all about balancing between the light and the darkness. And it's the same backstage people. And it's it's mostly a lot of individual acts also in Kidam with a few major group acts. And the group acts very culture-oriented, you know, Eastern uh, European. So it was a clash between circus performers and acrobats from the acro world. Especially with Kostya as a leader of that troupe. Yeah, and Kostya, Kostya became the leader of Kidam altogether by the time we transitioned <laughs> into arena. So when we transitioned out of Kidam Big Top into Arena, that's when we integrated a whole new group of Bankin mm-hmm. that Bernard spoke about a few weeks ago, how they trained them in, in, in Ukraine. Um, we integrated them and we needed to change the culture because we needed to evolve past what those years of how well, this is always how it's been. It's not that's not a good excuse. It's not an excuse to remain uh, the way you've done things, you know especially when you hear that's always how it's been it's probably a good sign at that point to to listen to and go maybe it's a time to change it then you know maybe it's a time to question it there is a saying that there are two types of idiots the ones who think that because something is old it's good and the ones who think that because something is new is necessarily better yeah no, so so uh, it's it's very fine line to balance. It's very challenging to do. Um, and I remember I wanted to bring Kidam, and we all wanted to bring Kidam to a new level of of you know there was a lot of unhappiness uh, uh, of of doomed misery when you got on Kidam. It didn't have to be like that. It didn't need to be like that. And it's the people within, of course, that create that. But we wanted to change that to make it a different light. But at the same time, 
And like I said, what happens on stage is reflected backstage. And this is something very powerful with the shows of Franco. And as much as we did make it when we brought it to a new level, a lot of what uh, used to be remained because again, it, it needs to balance itself. And uh, Alegria was the same way because Alegria was pure, was loving, was white. Everything was was like perfect mm-hmm. on stage. It was almost the same backstage. It was almost boring backstage because everything was going so well all the time. And all you heard about is how well it was things were going on Alegria. How difficult it was on Kidam and how rock and roll it was on Saltamanco. So again, it's a, it's a great attribute and, and uh, you know, to, to the work that Franco and the team did back in the day. So, but Kidam, I, I, uh, I did for a few years and that's when, uh, my dad unfortunately passed away during the time that I was on Kidam. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was visiting him in Vegas when it happened. So again, karma is a strange things. Uh, I'm very thankful that, uh, I was able to be there in Vegas when it happened. Uh, mm-hmm. Kidam was extremely, um, they gave me as much time as I wanted before coming back. So I came back, I think six weeks after he passed, which was, you know, unheard of uh, to be able to give, you know, your main GSM, like take the time you need and and come back, come back when you're ready. But from that point on things, things changed dramatically in my life. Uh, Losing, losing my dad was losing an anchor. Um, uh, within, you know, so I had grown up inside the company. My dad was inside the company. My sister worked with the company. Uh, it was all a family affair and Cirque at that point. Also, there's a new change that started to happen at Cirque at the end of 2012, early 2013 shows started to close failures started to happen a bit more. And there was a whole restructuring called the revamp that happened in 2013. And it became a very different place. And and looking back on it, you realize, oh, they were preparing to sell. They were preparing the company to sell it. They were preparing to give parts. So Guy's dream, he stopped, not that he stopped believing in it, it, it grew into something else. He, he wanted it to become something else. He wanted for for something else for him. Uh, so uh, it's a good lesson. You, in life, you only enjoy the moment. You cannot predict what the future will be as much as the right now is good. You don't know. You don't know because it evolves. You cannot stay in one place one time forever. So this was a great lesson. Um, and it, I realized that I wanted more as well. I was always more artistic oriented. I was always more um, um, that creative spark that I had in the video world uh, that I had being part of the creative teams of Cirque in those days uh, was really much alive. And I realized I wanted to be more in I'd say like what attracted me then was being an artistic director, of course, at Cirque. Um, but there was no jobs opening. There was no, and then first, then you had to be an AA, right? The artistic assistant on the big top or, in, and back part of the revamp is that they, they removed the AA for Riverina tour. So then as a GSM, I took more space and it was great. And, and I, I filled that void, but I still wanted more. And I realized that, Part of my life, I never made a decision for myself professionally. You know, I ended up in Vegas when I was a teenager and I had opportunities, doors opened in front of me and I I, I took the the path. Uh, Same when O happened, you know, I I was presented an opportunity. I chose the path and I took it, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, same when I went to delirium, you know, uh, I lost a job in Vegas an opportunity happened. I took it, you know, I never made a decision like, oh, let's, you know, I always went somewhere that, but because I had something to, to fall back on. Yeah. And 
I realized on Kidam, and this was hard because we had done three years of North American touring and, and we were just about, we were just beginning the European tour. And mm -hmm. when you tour, you know, after three years in North America, going to Europe is like, it's like, wow, we're changing scenery. We're going to have such a different lifestyle. And I knew that the show was, was going to tour, you know, Asia, Australia, I was going to go places and I had never been to those places, but I also realized I was at the end of my road with them. So I took a decision to leave Cirque at that time. Okay. Uh, and this was the first time that I decided something for myself without anything to fall back on. Mm -hmm. So I decided to leave Cirque in order to give myself a chance to, to explore something else, but also mm -hmm. to, to start finding out who I am, uh, mm -hmm. myself, outside of Cirque, uh, which was really important. I was, by that time I was 35. I had been with Cirque for nearly 20 years. Um, and I had been in Vegas for 10, touring for 10. So in a way I didn't really have a home for the last 20 years. And I needed to find out what life is like, uh, the real life, you know? So, mm -hmm. uh, so I made the decision and then, um, not too long after I was presented in an opportunity to go work on a show in Mexico which became Hoya. And yes, but <laughs> another opportunity. Uh, it's funny because I thought, Oh, great. Well, it's actually not sir. Cause it's, it's 45 degree creating the show. And it's the, the Mexican partners operating the show. It actually, it's not even a partner. They're the one operation and they're in charge of operation and they own the show. Uh -huh. Cirque is only there to recommend a few things. So I thought, fantastic. I get to work for a different employer. I get to go live in, in Cancun, uh, wow, it's sunny all year long. It sounds great. You know, it sounds amazing. And I get to do a creation, which I haven't done creation for a long time. So, so I end up on Oya and, um, right away I realized, oh, oh, this is just like touring because you, you stay in a resort with the performers and the management staff. And so it's the same exact thing as touring. You go down for breakfast in the morning. Everybody's like, Hey Gab, what's up? Hey, what's on the schedule today? And you're like, Oh my God, where's my life? Where's the life that I want to get, you know? Yeah. And I realized quickly that in order to be happy, I needed to, to probably move out of the resort, get a place for myself. So mm -hmm. I wasn't ready to commit to that. And at that point I met someone, I decided to move back to Montreal and give this a try. So, but I stayed on Oya for almost a year. Oh, and what was your position on Hoya? For the, doing so GSM was I was the GSM, but on the Hoya, and this is what attracted me on it, is they didn't necessarily have an artistic director. There was a show director and a GSM. So there was a void to fill as far as being the artistic director. And Joël Bergeron was the show director. I had to do a lot of the management work with Vidanta, the resort. So we made it very clear to one another that I was filling a lot of the void of the artistic director. So that's one of the main reasons why I jumped on that project because I could, I could bite into the apple and really get a taste of it, you know, and, and being guided with Joel and working with Joel and on a show that didn't have any string attached to Cirque. So once the show opened, it was ours to operate and ours to decide on, because there's nothing worse than being in charge of something, but being a puppet inside of it, because you cannot yes. do, you know, and I didn't, and I'm not saying that in relation to anything, but Oh yeah. Gave me an opportunity to really, you know, you want to go right. Let's go right. Let's give this a try. Joel, let's sit down and talk about this. Let's do this. Should we make that change? Let's make that change. Okay, perfect. Let's do it. And then we implement it. Whereas before working with Kidam and Cirque and, and, and those years, um, especially those years, it's not like this anymore, but 
in order to make a change in the show, you needed to basically fill out a few forms. It would go to various different directors in Montreal. Mm -hmm. The response would come back four months down the road. Now they streamlined it a bit more. Uh, you know, I think that the artistic directors on the big top and the arena tours are more in charge of their casting and the show and the direction they're going to give it. And rightfully so. That's a good thing. As long as you're honest and, and authentic about what the intention of the show was and you're able to reach the audience. So uh, that's why I took Hoya. Uh, and after that, when I left Hoya, uh, I was offered right away to do a special event in Andorra. And my first question was, and they wanted me as a GSN. And I said, well, okay, who's the artistic director? They said, well, there's there's no artistic director. The, the stage director usually is, but he's not going to stay on the project this year. Well, I said, make me the artistic director then. I want to do GSM and artistic director mm -hmm. at the same time. And I said, really? I said, okay, that's weird. We've never done that. you know. So I said, yeah, do it. You got two people for the price of one. I said, it's fantastic. Yeah. And it's, it's for a run of 25 shows. It's perfect, you know? And mm -hmm. this will make me want to do it. That's what I told him. So they gave it to me and I ended up doing Andorra for three years in a row. And I started, then it's funny because you move back to Montreal, you, you want to make a life for yourself. You want to develop your own network. And the one employer that you've worked with for your life is the one that keeps calling you, <laughs> you know? So, <laughs> which was fantastic because uh, yeah. I, I was able to buy a house, uh, start growing my roots here. Um, and then I would go for projects and I would leave for three months and come back. And this house that we bought is my landing strip. This is where I land from, from, from event and I refresh and I, I re-energize myself with my partner here. And then, and then here we go again, we get on to a new event. Mm -hmm. So I had a period of a few years of working very various events. And this was an extremely uh, great learning environment, extremely challenging, extremely competitive too. And it's something I had not necessarily lived before within Cirque, but this competitive in which way? Um, <laughs> You're only as good as the last show that you've ever done, right? That's always something that we know. Uh, mm -hmm. So when you do something good, people call you back. You know, here in Montreal, there's a huge density of, uh, of capacity of people doing. There's a huge density of, of artistic contributors, you know, that can contribute mm -hmm. and very few projects. So uh, you have to be very competitive and to be very talented and you have to, to be able to juggle. Uh, how do you socialize and, and make contacts and how do you get hired for also your skills? And I've always struggled with that because I've always wanted people to call me for my skills and not because of my network mm -hmm. capacity, but the work doesn't work like that. You know, the world doesn't, doesn't work like that. So, so it became really challenging to, to realize there's a lot of us, very few projects, though there was a lot of project, but so, um, it forces you as well to to branch out. And it's something I've learned a lot with the pandemic, of course, is, is when your employer disappears, where do you go to work? You know, so uh, I had to, I had to branch out and, and, and grow, but the special events allowed me to go from, you know, GSM into full on artistic director uh, on projects uh, and eventually creative director. So, but I had very, very interesting project and special events, but one came up more interesting than others. Uh, and it was the Elena Fisher project. And when that, when I heard about that project, I think it was 2016. I remember hearing about this, this German pop star who wants to do a show with Cirque and she tours arena. And I had, I had left delirium a year, only a year into it. And I, I was still hungry about that arena tour and, and delirium. I always felt was missing a, a simple element. They were missing the star 
attraction. Mm. If if Delirium had paired their show, let's say with America's Got Talent singers or or you know at the time, I think they could have done something that would attract crowds because of of the media, the, the masses of media, like a mainstream talent that would attract. Most of the- at the time of delirium i think it was american idol was the big show on tv so i think if we had done a delirium version with american idol finalists as singers you could have had uh, an amazing uh, power of attraction and while creating a, an amazing content in the background you know and it, it would have given i think delirium the the missing uh aspect that uh, people needed to why do i come to see this you know is it it's not just for acrobatics so with elena fisher i thought my God, this is so interesting. Here's a pop star who wants to have a Cirque du Soleil concept. And, you know, people compared her to Pink because she does acrobatics, though she's nothing like Pink. Um, so I said right away, I raised my hand. I said, I want to be on that project. So uh, they called me within a few months and I was on the project, part of the creative team with Mukhtar. And we delivered this project in a year where Cirque project we were the black sheep of all Cirque projects, basically, because oh yeah, yeah, there was a there was a big show in Kazakhstan at the time, uh, Reflect, uh, Crystal was opening, and those mm-hmm. those shows was all created by Forty Five Degrees. Mm. It was a period where like it was the Cirque creative team on one side, the Forty Five Degree team on the other side, and it was a competition between the two. It was a huge competition, and Forty Five Degree was was like was rising like quicker than anything that I'd ever seen, right? Mm-hmm. And the Ellen Fisher project. People were like, ah, what is this? You know, so because the big project in Ref- Reflect in Kazakhstan, Crystal, those were huge projects people could relate to, but they didn't they did not understand what that project with this German singer was. Once we delivered and the show started touring and the amount of success that that show got, everybody's eyes turned on us now and they were like, mm. oh my God, what did you guys do? What did you guys create? And it was a very relatively small team that put that show together. It was quite impressive. Mm. And um, and that's when I started my relationship with Elena and uh, and her team, and we toured for a year with that show, uh, and I was full on resident director on the show, uh, and that opened doors for me after that to become a creative director, um, mm-hmm. and um, I ended up working on cruise ships, and I felt. It was a difficult journey to become a creative director, meaning that it's not because you get the job that you're good at it. And that's a good lesson in life because you always think, oh, I got the job, so I must be good at it. No, you, you realize quickly <laughs> that you're not necessarily very good at it. You have to you have to do the work and learn. Uh, yeah. But I, I, as I said earlier, when you when you get into a position when you know you belong at that time and place, this is where you belong. Uh, I said that about GSM earlier. I knew that at that time and place, I belonged as a creative director. For me, this was uh, the accumulation of all these years of working, my capacity to be sensitive, to 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 keep all the information from all these shows, from all the audiences. You know, you have to realize I've spent more than three or 4,000 shows live in front of audience calling shows. So I know how audience respond from different uh, uh, cultures you know so so this is all part of knowledge that that is able at that point you're able to guide another team uh, sure. and you're able to guide a creative team and as a manager i think the empathy i'm able to give the the listening ears and the guiding of how to make a team work uh how do you develop a team you know the level of experience you want to bring the level of 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 risk you want to take as well with different creative that don't have the same level of experience you have to balance this out properly 
and you have to take risks. Above all, you have to take risks. And uh, the cruise ship, though it was not regarded as a very uh, good uh, project at the time in those in those first few years, uh, I think people start to change their mind after a couple of years because they realized that not only were we providing uh, Cirque du Soleil experience on cruise ships, but we were also building the next generations of performers and technicians. And to this day, there's performers that have gone through cruise ships and technicians that are touring now with Cirque that have gone through cruise ships and it elevated their game. It's like an internship, you know, in mm-hmm. a very professional level uh, because you're not able to attract a Guillaume Cauchois, let's say, but you're able to attract someone that just comes out of circus school. And hasn't dug their, their teeth into any, you know, and send them a year on a on a cruise ship, and then they come out as a better performer. So I remember casting clowns as an example, saying, "Look, I know this is not easy, but I said what I'm able to give you is every night I'm giving you two different full house audience to play with, and as a clown, you can't ask for better." I said, "You're gonna come out of this contract so much more experienced and knowledgeable." Yes, for sure. Yeah. So many opportunities to try new material and to try new things. Yeah, for sure. It's amazing. The other element that made the cruise ship um, special um, or, I mean, that created the distinction from the, the other shows was it's in its parameters. Um, you know, in Cirque du Soleil, we're used to big production shows and, and always uh, with a wow behind it, whether they're touring shows, big top shows, uh, you know, arena shows, Vegas shows. The cruise ship did not have that reputation. There was not a lot of money into it. Uh, so you had to really be extremely creative. So it was not a project that uh, you were necessarily attracted to. You know, That said, this is a, there's a similar lesson into uh, in my story, uh, uh, what I lived with Sultan Banco and not being <laughs> attracted to the older performance show, you know, where at the end of the day, I ended up uh, having a bit of a renaissance within the show itself because of the community, because of uh, also ultimately what the show, the quality of the show was. And I think a bit of the same thing happened with the cruise ship where uh, you did not have the big uh, cats, the big production, all the big budget, but there is quite a bit of money that was poured into those shows. But within nine to 10 months, we had to create two distinct shows with a cast of 16 only, 16. And that, those are two shows, 45 minutes each, two different shows, two different acrobatic shows, two different storyline, two different set of costume, lighting, proposal, everything has to, to all fit within the same envelope with those 16 performers. So you have to be extremely creative on how you cast and what type of casting. And and that casting has to be re- repeated every six months because the whole there's a whole changeover every six months, and this was for ten years. So it was as soon as I started meeting with other creative directors at Cirque, and I explained with the parameters that I was into, they, their faces would always drop and go, "Oh, oh, that's quite a puzzle," <laughs> you know. And on their side, they have quite a puzzle to to to. Uh, to discover it and 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 put together on their projects but they always walked away going wow what a project what a puzzle to 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 solve and uh, we had an amazing theater amazing uh, set uh, you know it was quite a ferrari of theaters for uh, ocean uh, state lines uh, uh, ships to be uh, going around the world uh, 
So those uh, those shows, ultimately, you had to turn within and create quality content that would touch the audience, that would have the performance level of Cirque du Soleil and a smaller scale, but more than anything, the emotional level that uh, you're able to connect the audience to. And uh, I think that's what made those cruise ship uh, spectacles uh, uh, important for the brand. Um, it, it helped further develop the brand. It helped really develop the cruise ship brand for sure for their side. But within Cirque also, I think what I really appreciated is that we were under the radar, meaning we did not have the same pressure on us that they had on Run, for example, or they had on Axel when in the year that I was working on those shows. So we could take risks that were not questioned the same way. And therefore you're able to explore a little bit more and you're able to to create more of a lab feeling into those projects and Cirque uh, was less and less able to create labs so to speak but within those cruise ships we were able to take some of the labs that were left and make them grow so i know that on some ships they they, they really push some ideas and we did the same we develop new acrobatic equipment uh, air or apparatus uh, language uh, and we were really creative in, in in trying out things so 2019 is when we delivered those two shows on uh, msc grandiosa and i gotta say 2019 was a very difficult year creatively for cirque uh, there was a lot of challenge to deliver a lot of shows mm. this was part of the, the final push to uh, from tpg to to boost the company's uh, portfolio uh, and as much as our project was challenging and hard, we killed it. We really killed on the delivery of those two shows, two very distinct shows. And I'm 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 sad that uh, those two shows will never come back. Of course, because uh, especially one of them was an absolutely uh, it was a beautiful, touching show. Um, and I was happy lately. I, I saw some Cirque event uh, that they did and they reused some of the music. So some of it is coming back to life. And we had started to work on the final ship of the series of uh, MSC on two new shows. So I was already on those two shows when the pandemic hit and we were taking risks. We were trying something new again. We were mixing the arts of wrestling and circus together. We were really going mm -hmm. places and the pandemic put a stop to all of that for all of us, you know, um, mm -hmm. and, and uh, I'm still coming to term a few years later, you know, my journey hasn't stopped, but the direction of the journey has changed dramatically, you know, so uh, it's, it's unfair. It's not fun for anyone. Uh, some people's shows ended, uh, some people's career ended without the final bow. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the whole world changed. So, um, it's it's sad to leave all of that on the table and then of course Cirque went through its own transformation deaths and rebirth dramatic death and rebirth but it's it's like we've always known there was a curtain that was hiding what the business people were doing you know but the curtain fell hard on Cirque when when the pandemic happened because obviously we saw we we got to see what they were working on how they were working on it and the gamble that they were trying to take in order to to bring the company to the next level and it's not a critique what i'm saying uh, but i don't think any of us understood the gravity of the gamble that they were taking which in the business world makes sense but it was it was it was deep because obviously uh, um it, it led to i mean within three days i think of the the world stopping because of the pandemic Cirque laid off 
95% of the workforce. I mean, you're talking about three days. You know, Vegas stopped their shows on Sundays. And on the Thursday, I think we got a, a Zoom with Daniel Lamar mm-hmm. telling us we were all being let go, except for a very a handful of projects. And I was lucky to be on one of those projects that continued, mm-hmm. but only for a few more hours, you know. Yeah. But you're, you're, you're thinking, wait a second, this company that's been so highly profitable for so many years, you cannot keep people on paychecks for a few more weeks, days? No, three days. Um, so it didn't make any sense. And of course, we were being hit one day after the next with horrible news and, and trauma. You know, we were getting, we were facing trauma on a daily basis. So you just take it, you swallow it and you go, I'll deal with that later. I'll deal with that later. You know, so, yeah. Yeah. and, um, and so it didn't make any sense. My girlfriend and I, we both worked at Cirque. So she lost her job. I was able to continue, but we didn't know for how long. Uh, the great thing with us is that the cruise ship was being built. It was going to get delivered in a few months. So there, mm-hmm. there was no choice. That cruise ship was being delivered. And and the partnership was strong. So, But that was very foolish of us to think that in a pandemic, cruise ships and entertainment would be the first ones to come back. <laughs> Actually, it became the opposite. You know, cruise ships were the last to come back. So were uh, entertainment. So, And something that uh, I would like to ask you about is that you were the key person and very influential in the fact that when the company reopened, most of us, most of the people who got laid off without any any money, without any insurance and everything, we all received some money when the company reopened. But I know that that was not supposed to be the case when the company closed. So would you want to talk a little bit about why did you fight so hard for people to be able to get that money, even though it was not sure that we were going to go back working for the company? And how did you lead that battle? Um, out of innocence. You have to be very innocent sometimes. And I say innocent, naive. Out of being naive, sometimes you, you do things that you don't know what you're getting into. And and I did that out of being, uh, out of naiveness a little bit. Um, w- one of the people I'm uh, that's dear to me that I work with a lot, Katie, stage manager, uh, Katie Ball. She always tells me, you're such a romantic cab. You believe in things, you, you know, you, you see things in a way that they're not really like that. And she's right. Mm-hmm. She's right. I am a romantic. I'm a utopic person. I believe in the goodwill of people and I believe in doing good deeds. And, um, but there's a balance to that. You know, you have, you cannot be blind. And, um, that year preceding the pandemic, um, I worked on those two shows, um, on the cruise ship and, it was such a hard delivery of those two shows that I put everything aside in my life in order to deliver those two shows. Um, it was a very, I didn't think I was, I was going to last at the end, but they, the company trusted me and we were able to deliver two great shows with, with, uh, you know, with a lot of innovation and, and it's fantastic. But one of the thing I didn't do during that year, I didn't send my invoices. Because I didn't feel, and this is part of the psychology of being part of a company since you're a kid. I didn't feel like I earned my money until I delivered the project. So I held on to those invoices. So by the end of the year, those invoices had piled up. And by the time I sent those, they were in early 2020. And then I started working on a new show. And when the pandemic hit, 
uh, I was sent home. And then when eventually when our project was put on hold, um, I was like, okay, fine, no worries. You know, I got a big check coming, you know, because I got a year worth of invoice. Mm-hmm. I was owed $70,000. So that's a big chunk of money. It is huge. And, um, and I remember thinking, well, no stress, you know, this is a time to relax. And and it only lasted for a couple of days. And one of my uh, assistant called me and says, we're being told we're not going to get paid on our project. And he was working on Andorra. I was like, okay, well, that's weird. And then I heard something else from another show. It's like, well, we're being told our, our, fa- our, our invoices are not going to get processed yet. I said, oh, that's weird. But again, I worked for MSC. I didn't work for MSC, but I worked for CERC. But MSC was the the partner. MSC had paid CERC the money for the delivery of the Grandiosa ship at the end of 2019. They had paid the money. And they had paid mm-hmm. the beginning of the money for the next ship, Virtuosa. So I was like, well, my money is there. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come to me. That was very foolish of me to think that business works in such a clear way. It does not. It's not because they got paid that you're going to get your money specifically. They use that money, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. to to fuel the business plan that they had in place. So uh, then I, re- I I start to to think and I start to bounce around. There's a few people around me. You know, my my mom's boyfriend is a uh, is a vice president of a, of a bank. He was vice president of a bank of in Canada here, and then. Him and I start talking. He goes, that doesn't smell good, Gab. It doesn't smell good. Mm-hmm. So what do you mean? He goes, if they're not paying you, it doesn't smell good. And he says, look, they have zero revenues. They're holding off on treating your invoices. He says, they're heading for bankruptcy. I said, no, it cannot be. It cannot be. Sir, it cannot be heading for bankruptcy. He says, they're heading for bankruptcy. It's going to take them months to set, set this up. He says, but you, if in order to get paid, you're going to need to fight like hell. And I was like, no, 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 it cannot be, it cannot be. Cannot be. And then someone else told me, goes, Gab, you've, you've been at CERC for a long time. Why don't you just write? You know, I started, and then at, the, at that point, I started getting nervous and nauseous because I'm like, what do you mean? I'm not going to get my $70,000 that I worked so hard for? Yeah, in the middle of a pandemic when I'm out of job. <laughs> yeah, and I started getting nauseous, like really uncomfortable. And of course, you're, you have debts, you know, credit card debts. You have things that you need to deal with. Mm-hmm. And someone said, you've been at the company for long enough, so why don't you write to Daniel Lamar directly? And so I wrote to Daniel and Yasmin, who was uh, the executive producer of Cirque, and I, I pleaded for my case saying, uh, guys, uh, I got this much in, on the line here. Um, let me know. Reassure me, please. It took them 24 hours to repeat to reply, and they basically said, we hear you, we feel for you, but we have no control on the company anymore. And that shook me to the bone. And I was like, okay, wait, they don't have control to the company. So I went back to my mom's boyfriend and he started talking. Then I started talking to a friend who's a lawyer and they all said the same thing. They're heading for bankruptcy and you're going to get swallowed up. How am I going to get a raise? How's that possible? I said, I'm the, I'm the reason they have business is we create content for them. But you got to remember in 2020 and still to this day, that's how it works. Cirque has a workforce that manages HR, finances, uh, coaching and staffing inside their headquarters and touring staff. Anything creative is contractual. Anything creative, you come in as a freelancer. So when there's a bankruptcy, you're the last one to get paid. Because there's a lot of people in line to get paid. Actually, the people selling vegetables to the, the cafeteria of CERC were probably mm-hmm. ahead of me in the line to get paid. And for me, it did not make any sense because 
Yeah. We are the content creator. Mm-hmm. We create the content for the business. Not that generates the money. That generates the money. Yeah. And I say we, it's not just artistic, it's technical, it's it's production, it's the technical directors, the riggers, all that team that we hired for a specific amount of time working on a project. And not only that, I work back to back for Cirque. You project to project to project to project. So in a way, I'm like an employee, but I'm not recognized as an employee. So it it really started to piss me off, you know, and then really start. Yeah, yeah. So I I thought, well, first thing we thought was like, okay, well, let's do like a Facebook post, you know, like like to protest and to to re- reveal that to the world. And um, and I knew I could not do this alone, so I called a few people and I called fellow creative directors at Cirque and fellow producers at Cirque. And we we all start talking about this and realize, oh, we're all being treated the same way. It doesn't work. So we all check with our, within our own team. So it was the core team of projects at Cirque. We all got together and we we said, okay, well, let's let's build a plan. Let's let's work out a case where we can approach Danielle and, and tell them, well, if you don't pay, this is what's going to happen. If you don't pay, this is what's going to happen, you know. Mm-hmm. And we start to, to reach out to people saying, you have a safe space with us to be anonymous if you want to to let us know how much you're being owed. And so we can compile the information and realize what the impact, the gravity of it is. Because Gab at $70,000 means nothing. But if there's 50 of us, if there's 100 of us, how, how does that amount to? And so quickly we realized uh, within a few weeks, we were about 120 and it was over a million US dollar that we we're being owed to us. So this was very intense. Uh, and then we start moving forward. And at the same time, I was approached by a journalist by the New York Times to talk about Cirque as Cirque had stopped. And what they wanted is more information about how Cirque had worked and the good things that they'd done over the years and everything. So I was able to, to help him and fill in some of the information. And he was telling me very clearly, I'm talking to Daniel Lamar right now. I'm talking to Mitch Gerber. I'm talking to all these people. Okay, great. And eventually he said, tell me about you. And I told him my story and he goes, I want to write about the story. So I said, okay, fine. And eventually I, I, I did the interview with him. Um, and then I freaked out because I thought that's it. I'm going to get crucified after this. <laughs> but then uh, I was reassured by a few friends and family saying, you know, um, it's only a moment in time. It's the strong is the storm is always the strongest when you're in the middle of it. But once the storm has passed, it eventually disappears. You know? So I thought, okay, well, it's fair. They owe me money. So I said, yeah, you can write my name. You can write the amount of money you owe me. And I will then critique the company in a way, you know, I am coming after them, but with respect, it was always meant to be with respect. Uh, and then together with the, uh, the, the, the other directors, we decided to go public with our, um, mm-hmm. our regrouping. Uh, but no one wants, wanted to be uh, official. No one wanted to represent themselves. So since I was coming out in the New York Times, I thought, well, sure, I'll do it. I'll be the uh, spokesperson for the regrouping. Mm-hmm. And um, look, you got to remember this. So two things, right? I'm owed $70,000 that lit a fire under my ass. Second thing, and this is my romantic side, uh, I'm a creative director. I represent creative uh, designers and teams. And uh, I cannot bear the fact that in two years from now, we're going to all be working on a project and I'm going to ask them to push and go to the extra mile and stay after midnight to give it all we've got so we can cross the finish line because that's how you deliver projects. You know, you have to go beyond what you've delivered. You have to go beyond that. And they're all going to look at me and go, no, 
why would I push for a company that didn't pay me? So for me, that's what I was fighting for. I was fighting for them to get paid. Uh, so that's the romantic side. And also I was fighting for the fact that they owe me $70,000. Yeah. And right away, I found a, a position of leadership inside of it that was very natural. And it was like taking a masterclass in communication at university that spring because uh, I, en I ended up being in front of media's back-to-back. Uh, uh, -back, uh, and it shook quite a bit uh, in, the, in the world of Cirque when that came out in the media. Cirque did not expect that, though we had warned them, but we got no response. And by the time we got a response to them, six hours later, we went public. Uh, because they said, just wait in line. You're not, you know, we have nothing to tell you. Uh, so we went public, uh, and right away I started getting phone calls from uh, various people, investors that were interested in Cirque. Mm -hmm. And, uh, a friend of mine said to me, he says, they're not calling you because you made a good job. <laughs> they're calling you because you have, <laughs> you have a direct impact on the financial value of the company at the moment. He says, it's not a very big impact. He said, don't get me wrong. He said, it's not big. It's a few million dollars, but you're, you're staying on the company at the moment because you're showing to the world that they're not taking care of the, what matters most to them in a way, right? Yeah. They're, they're, they're the contribute. Though Cirque had, had a lot to take care of at the time. From my point of view, they did not take care of what mattered most. So um, again, we got no response from them. And eventually I was able to, to have a direct discussion with uh, Mitch Garber who was the chairman of the board at the time and co uh, was also part owner of Cirque. And him and I negotiated and discussed for a few weeks. Um, though I had we never got what we asked for, which was a guaranteed. It went on for a few weeks and then Cirque's anniversary was coming up. So we decided to, to uh, plan for a, uh, a public stunt that we would do to celebrate, to underline Cirque's anniversary, June 16th but also to continue claiming our, our um, position that we, we wanted to get paid and we want to get paid full. Uh, so we made it, we, we did a project, we created, we put a team together, creative directors, production, you know, and the idea was to recreate a big top uh, and have the uh, artisans of uh, so technical creative production hold that big top so we wanted to show and represent that without its artisans the big top cannot stand mm -hmm. yeah. and so we made first public stunt to happen in montreal at the old port exactly where cirque's big top would be and of course this was in the midst of the pandemic so managing all of this and of course yeah. the old port in montreal is a great partner of cirque they didn't want to you know, they didn't want us there. So we had to do this illegally, very quickly. Oh God, that's we have to get media to come in. We have to, you know, organize all of that. I'm writing a speech, an elocution to, to, to say to the media. So this was all planned and great. And I invited Guy and Jill to come in uh, to the, the, that stunt. And Jill came. And Jill with his uh, grand, um, Jill is a master, you know. And Jill came and super nice. And he looks at me, he goes, do you want me to say anything? Oh, okay. Now you want to speak? Uh, I said, of course, I'm not going to, you know, because part of me was like, no, just sit back and enjoy. We even had a band playing. We had the brass band playing Cirque music. You know, we like, this was, yeah. this was done out of like, we want our money, but we're going to put an artistic uh, show yeah. together. Right. Yeah. And Jill um, came and I'm telling the cameras, this is the co-founder of Cirque. You want to catch that. So the media's jump on him. And basically, yeah. Jill 
rightfully took the side of our our our, our case, uh, spoke highly of us, and um, told Sir directly in the eyes that uh, they needed to pay us. Uh, this was not right, and he he pulled out then out of his jacket original ticket of 1984 in the Big Top Show wow. that he had discovered in his his attic, and he took one and gave to each of of the artisans that were present. He says, here's a ticket from 1984, uh, $1, $1 entrance. And he gave us all this, this memorabilia. And then after that, we went into the speech and everything. But, you know, so as much as we did a great thing, Gilles is the one that elevated this uh, this punchline, you know. And Cirque was taking with their pants down basically that day, unfortunately, to, to say the least. Uh, they did not even have anything planned to underline the anniversary of Cirque. So we were in the news before they were. And by the end of the day, the uh, public uh, spokesperson of Cirque said, oh, yeah, we will pay them, but it might not be 100%. I went back on the media that night saying, no, we work 100% of our, our time. You're going to pay us 100% of our, our salary that is owed to us. And two weeks later, um, Cirque announced to all of its employees that they had another Zoom call with them. Um, June 30th, I think. 2020 uh and we knew this was not good news you know and uh, so that was planned for like 1 p.m and i got a phone call i'm in i'm in my gym here in the morning doing bicycle and i'm stressed i don't know what's happening i haven't heard anything back from them <laughs> and i get the phone phone ringing and and is this gabriel dubé dupuis i said yeah daniel lamar is on the line waiting for you Daniel Lamar, oh, what's going on? Shit. Shit, what's going on, yeah? So, Daniel, bonjour, Gabriel. Uh, and Daniel and I know each other for a little bit for over the years. Of course, we saw, you know, bonjour, Gabriel, I just want to inform. And you can tell that he's actually reading something. Reading well, reading something that he's prepared. That, that's how Daniel, Daniel is a very smart and very uh, highly uh, skilled public speaker. And also, mm-hmm. um, and he explains to me that Cirque is about to go uh, to protect himself from bankruptcy uh and that they're going to let go of everyone and uh, they're only keeping a few people on board they're restructuring the whole company the company is going to be purchased again by a different owner at some point you know and that that the current owner is going to bid for it and part of the bidding is that they're creative they created a special fund to pay us mm-hmm. and they put together over five million us dollar to pay all of us that were unpaid because it was a bunch of us here in Montreal, but there's a bunch in LA and Vegas and all around the world that all benefited from from what we fought for. So that morning, it was very bittersweet. So as Daniela was informing me that, and again, three hours ahead of time, he was informing me what was about to happen. He was also letting me know that we were going to get paid in full, no question to ask. It was just, it was just going to get time. This is going to take time for the paperwork to process. So again, when, so I called my, my committee with me and so that day we turned down any interview because we had nothing to celebrate though. We were really happy for, for us that day. It was all about the employees that lost their jobs and start coming to an end the way they did also in June, 2020. So it was very bittersweet, but at the same time, very satisfactory, you know, there was a huge satisfaction in it because we had fought so hard and we had now had a guaranteed we were going to get paid. And you think to yourself, who else is he calling that morning? He's calling his partners. He's calling MGM. He's calling Disney. And he has to call us. He has to call us to let us know that we're going to get paid. And I think that that showed, you know, the strength of the message that we, we took, 
public and our fight and um, that it was the right thing to do. And I think Cirque to this day will, and for a long time, will benefit from that because they have shows happening now. They have new projects and creatives are going back and they're giving it all they can and they're going to give it all they can to 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 deliver. Again, that, that might be my romantic side, but at the end of the day, it was the right thing to do. And, and um, it's from what I've heard in the finance world, it's unheard of that a company that's about to, that wipes out all of its debt is actually going to pay some of its debt the way, to, to a full extent, to 100%, not 50 cents to the dollar, 100%. It's unheard of. So I take that as a great, uh, I take a lot of pride in it. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm very happy that uh, it's over and moved on. It's a difficult episode because obviously uh, I think I put a lot at risk by being the spokesperson Um, and it created doubts of course that afterwards I would not get rehired and you know Mm -hmm. and now now that you're back you're back at Cirque I'm not necessarily back at Cirque I was back with Cirque for the Ellen Fisher project but it allowed me to come back to Cirque for the first time Uh, Cirque has called me since the pandemic picked up again because they needed uh, someone to call shows, but I don't necessarily do that anymore. I don't necessarily want to do that. You know, when you're not, and especially as a GSM, calling a show is a very specialized skill and you need to have a really good focus and, and attention span. And, and I don't feel I have that, that focus to have people's life in my hands, uh, calling a show. So it's not something that, uh, I necessarily want to do anymore in my life. So I had to turn down a lot of opportunities after pandemic. And also because I want to continue working that creative direction work. So, and that's what I've been doing. I've been doing that at various companies. And I came back to Cirque with Elena Fisher because it's Elena Fisher, because mm-hmm. um, she believes in me because she wanted me around because I believe in the project. And I think as hard as the delivery of that show was every night, now we get the payback of having amazing sold out audience going crazy for what we're delivering. And uh, it's nice to reconnect with public. It's nice to recognize with performers. Uh, It's nice to meet new performers such as you, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's nice to live everything we're living. Yes, for sure. Um, Gab, before I let you go, I have one last question for you. Yes. If tomorrow aliens would land on earth, how would you explain Cirque du Soleil to them? Well, two things, I think. Um, after my episode of um, with the bankruptcy and, and us getting paid, I think I would try to sell tickets to the island to come see the shows. <laughs> so, Because I learned a lot about the business. <laughs> yes. and, uh, and there's a lot to learn and to respect about the business of show business. Uh, but this, the most important, I think, and I've always said that to all the performers I, I worked with and everyone, I think working at Cirque is like working at the United Nations because you work with all nationalities and um, Cirque for me is what the best of humanity can do together because we forget about our origins. We forget about our cultures in order to all devote ourselves into one goal, which is performing a show that night. And it's a show that brings up uh, features, human skills and humans creativity um, to its most magnificent state. And uh, you do that with uh, 
Russians working with uh, Ukrainians, Russians, you know, with Chinese working with Indians and Japanese and and South Americans working with North Americans. And, and it's such a fantastic mix. And at the end of the day, uh, you forget that uh, there are so many nations. We are just one one world. So uh, to them. Yeah, uh, that's a beautiful, beautiful last word. Gab, thank you so much for taking some of your time to come and chat with us. And thank you so much for all the work you've been putting in our show and in Cirque over the years. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kim. This is a, an amazing opportunity. It's always fun to talk. Uh, and I can't believe we actually spend all that this, this time together. I'm giving you a lot of editing work to do over the next few days. <laughs> no it's perfect i don't think i don't think i'll touch i'll touch much you, you were perfect thank you so much my pleasure Guillaume. thank you enjoy your summer yeah and we see you uh, down the road in germany yes i can't wait see yes. ya yes so guys is this episode an instant classic or what i'm pretty sure right what a journey, so much passion, and again, another artist who kept constantly pushing himself. I love that balance that he was able to maintain between seizing the opportunities when they presented themselves, but also always actively pursuing the next challenge, the next thing that would make him grow and evolve. Now, guess what, guys? It is your time to give us a good rating and review on your podcast app. It's quick and it really helps us more than you think. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, CircusTalk.com or wherever you're getting your podcasts. My friends, I'm afraid to tell you that we are done for today. Tuning next week. Until then, take care. Toy, toy, toy. And a big merd if you're having shows. And you know it. As we say in the circus, see you down the road.